what we're talking about today is something that's been weighing on my heart for several weeks now, okay? And it's it's the issue of lordship salvation uh, versus, I don't even want to say versus, but they typically put at odds with each other. Lordship salvation versus free grace theology, okay? So the way this whole thing started out, I just want to give you some backstory because I know some of you are like, oh, just, he just jumps around, man. He just jumps around. He's never sticking to the series. I try. I really do. Okay, but I was on YouTube a few weeks ago. I just saw like um, over and over the, the topic of free grace theology kept coming up and lordship salvation kept coming up. And I just kept putting it off. I didn't really care to hear what people were saying about it. It just seemed like a big controversy that seemed to surface very recently in the YouTube space. Okay, people like Ruslan, people like Alan Parr, people like um, What Do You Meme and, and Young Don, all these, all these guys, Corey Miner at the Smart Christian Channel, are weighing in on this thing of Lordship Salvation versus Free Grace. And so I watched a few of their videos. I was like, this is interesting. Um, and I, I knew after a few conversations I've had with people on our Discord server, I knew it was time for me to address this. People have been sending me resources lectures, teachings, everything you can think of, trying to sway me one way or the other, okay? I know where I stand now. I'm not gonna tell you immediately where I stand. This is a big deal. You have to understand, like, for so many people in both side, on both sides of the equation, this is a gospel issue. Like, this is a soul-level issue. This is an issue of eternity. You pervert the gospel, you corrupt the gospel, the simple message of Jesus Christ through faith by grace, you pervert that, you corrupt that in any, any fashion, then you're screwing people over. So on both sides of the equation, people are very adamant about the other side being heretics or false teachers or false prophets leading people astray. And so I'm finally weighing in. I think it's about time. You know, in this day and age, especially in the Christian YouTube space, everyone's a heretic. <laughs> you're a heretic if you think you can lose your salvation. You're a heretic if you believe you're eternally secure. You're a heretic if you believe free grace or lordship. You're a heretic and a false teacher and a, and a reprobate if you believe water baptism is needed or not. On every side of these different topics, if you believe prophecies for today, if you believe tongues, by the way, I did get a fresh cut. If you believe that, you know, the spiritual gifts aren't for today, either way, like, someone's going to call you a heretic. So I understand that me going forward, being honest with the scriptures, and I'm laying this all out now so you know I'm doing my best. I'm not trying to sway you any side. All I'm going to do is present the information from Scripture. I'm not trying to disprove lordship. I'm not trying to disprove free grace. I think there are extreme views within both camps. And I also think that within both camps, they often get misrepresented from the other side. Free gracers do, uh, some of them do a great job of representing lordship salvation as it is. Uh, others of them don't. You know, a lot of people do a fantastic job of representing uh, free grace and others like they misrepresent them and they attack a caricature and straw men And so I, I want you to understand like uh, I'm going to define lordship and free grace in a minute But you need to know that I've listened to over 30 plus hours of lecture of, of, of straight teaching from classrooms from the from the from the top guys in both camps okay, so there are right things and there are wrong things about both camps, whether you're free grace or whether you're lordship. There are right things and wrong things about both sides. Both camps get misrepresented often. You know, you'll look at 
yeah, free grace, and often they'll be called easy believism. And it almost makes, or cheap grace, as if grace costs anything. It costs Jesus everything. It costs us nothing. It's a free gift. Or, or lordship salvation, okay? Lordship salvation. People often caricature lordship salvation as legalism, uh, false gospel, workspace. So we're just going to pull back the curtain. And instead of going, which one is right? All we're going to do is say, what does scripture say? So here's what lordship salvation, as best as I can define it, because I, I was in this camp for a number of years, and I didn't even know it. Reformed theology is usually connected to this. Calvinism, not always, but a lot of times is connected to lordship salvation, which is why they come to the conclusions they do, because they're reading scripture through the lens of Calvinistic theology. So lordship salvation, if you're wanting to know what is lordship salvation, here's what it is. Now before you say, that's me, don't, don't claim any side, any side of this yet, okay? Don't claim to belong to any camp yet. You've not heard all the arguments. You've not heard all the theology. You've not heard all the scriptures they use to reinforce their arguments. I would encourage you, wait till the end of this series before you decide which one you lean more towards. You're going to be very surprised. You're going to be very surprised where you stand at the end of this, as I was. Lordship salvation, typically defined at its core, is faith equals turning from sin plus total surrender plus lifelong commitment and that equals eternal salvation now i took that from one of the um one of the free grace teachers that i was listening to and he did a fantastic job of summing up all of that camp's uh, beliefs into one succinct statement um now there are some People who say, I'm lordship and I don't believe that, then you're not as lordship as you thought. This is the actual view of what lordship salvation is. Lordship salvation says, hey, faith equals turning from sin, repentance, plus total surrender, plus lifelong commitment. And that, that is what equals or guarantees eternal salvation. Now, free grace theology comes in and at its core strips away all of that. And says, no, salvation is through faith and by grace alone. Now, people who hold the Lordship will say, we, we believe that too. But several of the extreme individuals, there's an extreme side to these things. The extremists within Lordship salvation don't know it, but they're backloading faith with works and doing and activity and religious duty. Free grace theology comes in and says, let's strip away all of that because it's always been very simply by faith. It's just believing. It's not faith plus good works. It's not faith, faith plus any amount of evidence. No, faith plus no good works or fruit equals salvation. Okay? And that's typically the free grace theology stance. Is hey, it's faith alone. You don't need evidence. You don't need fruit. You don't need works. You don't need character. None of that. If, if that's going to happen, it's going to be because you put effort into it. But none of that is required to validate genuine faith. So some, some things you need to know about me. Okay, That's lordship as best as I can represent it. And that's free grace. After the 30 plus hours alone, I've listened to just free grace. And the top teachers. I don't remember their names because I didn't care about the names. These were the, the names and these were the lectures and the teachings people sent me. They were like, these are the top guys, and they are. They're fantastic teachers. 
The only problem is I disagree with quite a bit of the conclusions they come to. And I'll, I'll get to that. Here's some things you need to know about me. Number one, I agree. So does Lordship agrees with this and free grace agrees with this. We're saved through faith by grace in Christ alone. The second thing you need to know about me is I'm not Calvinist at all. Um, I'm not Lordship salvation either. That's just, I came out of that. Number three, I'm not classical free grace either. There's nuance to these things. Number four, as I've said over and over, I've already listened to lots of hours, reading, studying, listening, weighing, meditating, taking notes. I've heard every argument you can think of from both sides of the equation. I've heard it. It's not arrogance. I'm just saying I put, I put the due diligence into this. I'm not coming into this fight unprepared. I'm not even going to call it a fight. I'm not coming into this debate, this issue, uh, uneducated. So know that. Number five, I do believe in the eternal security of the believer. I'll say that again. I do believe in the eternal security of the believer. That needs to be defined. I've already done a video on that. It's not the typical once saved, always saved view. It's not the typical eternal security. I do believe if you believe in Christ, you are eternally secure. The last thing, I don't believe that free grace theology or lordship salvation, either of those camps are heretical. Meaning, I don't believe that if you hold to one of those sides, that automatically means you're not a believer. There might be issues within the doctrine that you might go, oh, that's a red flag, that's heretical. Let's pause and let's actually weigh these things. We'll get to them. But know this, I don't believe we can look at either side and go, well, if your lordship, you can't be a true Christian because you've perverted the gospel by backloading it with works. And I don't believe we can look at free gracers and go, well, they seem to be abusing grace and taking advantage of grace and living in sin and therefore they can't be genuine believers. I don't believe that's fair. Okay? And know this, throughout my time in ministry, I've been accused of being too heavy and like, hey, brother, like, you're saying works and fruit are evidence of faith. And I've been accused of being too light. Like, hey, bro, you believe we're eternally secure? I believe we can lose our salvation, forfeit it, walk away from it, reject it. If you can believe and that's a free will choice, then you can choose to not believe and walk away. I've had these conversations. I've been accused. So I, I'm standing on this side of, of, of this topic as someone who's not like uninformed, uneducated. Not only have I studied, I've, I've taken the blows and the hits. Okay, so I've been, there's no, you're never going to meet everyone's criteria for a good teacher. Just know that. Just know that. If you want to get into ministry, you want to teach and preach, you're never going to meet everyone's standard for what a good teacher is. Some will accuse you of being too heavy. And like, hey, let's not emphasize work so much and fruit and character. The other side is that some people will say you're too light. Look, bro, I think you, you need to like preach sin a little harder. You need to make sure repentance is at the, at the core of this and let people know they can't live in sin. And they can lose their salvation. I don't believe that. I don't believe you can forfeit, walk away from, reject salvation. I've already talked about this for hours in other videos. And I'll, I'll link those in the description below moving on. All of that up front. Here are the two premises I'm working from. Number one, I believe in eternal security. Number two, the microsecond you believe. The, and, and, and free grace and lordship, they will verbally agree with this. Okay? They'll agree with this. The very microsecond you believe in the gospel, you believe in Jesus, 
you are instantaneously justified, righteous, a child of God, a new creation, filled with the Spirit, given an eternal inheritance, seated with Christ. The microsecond you believe, you gain the full identity, full inheritance, full position as a redeemed, new child of God, forgiven and righteous in the sight of God. The microsecond you believe. I agree with that, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to start off by defining faith. Because I think within this whole debate, all the live streams I've scoured, all the different conversations I've heard, yes, they will, they will define faith at least briefly. The problem is, on both sides of the equation, lordship and free grace, the way they de- typically, I'm not saying everyone, I don't want to make general generalizations, okay? I'm going to try my best to stay away from that. But I will say, quite a few people on both sides, in both camps, don't define faith properly. That's an issue for me. Because if that's the foundation of everything we know and, and have as believers, and you define faith wrongly, of course you're going to come to wrong conclusions. So, moving forward, throughout this series, which I'm going to try and knock out this week, there's just a lot i got to get out. It's, I've been holding it in too long. A big issue in this conversation is faith. We're going to define that in this episode as biblically and as clear and as concise as we can be. Then, okay, what we're going to do in the next episode or in following episodes, we're going to define repentance. We're going to define repentance. And I've scoured the scriptures and looked at every single occurrence of the word repent, repentance, repenting, sorrow. I've looked it up. We're going to look at what the word fruit always is, typically. And then we're going to define grace and works. That way, at the end of this, you're not going, ah, I'm free grace or ah, I'm lordship. No, no, no. Forget the camps. Like, honestly, forget the camps. Forget your favorite theologians. Forget your favorite scholars. Like, just objectively evaluate the scriptures with me. I'm not reading the scriptures through any one of these lenses. That's why I purposely didn't tell you what what stance I take currently. Because you're going to say, oh, he's just reading the scriptures through that lens. At the end, I'll go, hey, here's where I stand. And I did my best to objectively evaluate scriptures apart from this lens. Here's where I stand on each of these topics. Today is faith. It's so important that you define faith properly. Now, there's a simple way to define faith. Free grace theology typically defines faith as the decision to believe or trust in, or to be convinced of, right? It is the decision to take God at his word and believe the gospel. And we all agree, we all agree that faith is the only requirement for full salvation. Faith, 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 belief, 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 trust, trust, trust. What does it mean though? Because in free grace theology, again, when it comes to faith, They say no good works, no good fruit, no evidence are needed to validate the presence of genuine faith. Because faith on its own saves. And you can't backload, you can't frontload faith with any amount of fruit or works or anything I do. That's the stance they take. Okay? And they'll say faith is not guaranteed to produce anything in the person's life. Because belief is sufficient. Now, moving forward, if I seem to be addressing more of the free grace arguments and more of what they say, it's because that is the view I've had to learn over the course of several weeks. I had no idea what that was. 
I didn't even know in what ways I actually was free grace and in what ways I wasn't. I didn't know that. I didn't know the terminology. So I had to educate myself. So if I seem to be addressing more of their arguments, it's because I'm doing that on purpose. It's purposeful. I don't have to deal with lordship as much because I think we can, at least from, from my perspective, I came out of that. I came out of the, the whole Calvinistic side of, of things, which I believe there's some good things within that. But, okay, the point is in this, if it seems like, wow, he's really going after the free grace arguments, that's because those seem to be the most resounding and sound logical ones that, that easily disprove a lot of the lordship theology. So I don't need to do that. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. They've already done a fantastic job of going, here's why lordship is wrong. I just want to talk through where free grace is right and where it's not as right and, and how lordship fits into this. Okay, so faith on its own saves. But what is faith? Go to Hebrews 11. He's finally going to the scriptures. Wow. Took you 30. Yeah, it did take me that long. Well, actually, we started 10, 15. So I 15 minutes. Give me a break. Okay. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. You guys let me know if the scripture is not changing on the screen. I try my best to make sure it is. On my end, it's scrolling. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Here's a contextual definition of, of faith, according to Hebrews. Meaning, we're not going to look at the Greek or Hebrew yet. Here's just a statement made about what faith is, per the author of Hebrews, when it comes to the hall of faith. You might call it the hall of waiting. Now, you're going to see comments like lilies of the field, discipleship and salvation need to be rightly divided. Absolutely. That's one of the mantras of free grace theology. I'm going to say that again. Many free grace theology individuals you come across, especially the more renowned teachers, this is their mantra. Discipleship and salvation or justification have to be rightly divided. We're going to do that. Okay. Not today, but when we get to fruit. Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It involves hoping for what God has promised and not wishful thinking. Not like maybe this will happen. It's eager expectation. It's guaranteed. I'm assured it's going to happen. There's assurance. It's the conviction of things that I don't see. Like what Jesus tells Thomas. You believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe and don't see. So you and I are convinced of an invisible God who's made himself visibly known through a number of ways. We're convinced of a resurrected Messiah, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, dying on a cross. Technically, we didn't see that. In that sense, it's invisible to us. Okay. Also, I mean, even when it comes to just... The, the concept of the spiritual reality and the spiritual realm and what God has promised and what God has done, the things that we believe God is, that he says about himself, we're convinced. We're convicted. Conviction is not always a bad thing, okay? Conviction is not always a bad thing. Conviction can be, I'm certain about the right thing, right? Or I'm certain this is wrong. So I'm convinced of what I don't see because of what God says, I'm assured of it, okay? There's assurance. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. How does God commend people? How does God declare Abraham righteous? How does God work and give 
blessings and salvation to people. It's through faith. How does God justify? It's through faith. So that's the means by which men and women receive their commendation from God. Faith is assurance of what I eagerly expect that God has done, who he is, what he said, what he's promised. So by faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God. Okay, so there's an invisible element to faith. Faith is not completely blind. For those of you that define faith as blind, always wrong. We have much evidence to reinforce the beliefs I have about what I don't see. I have a lot of evidence in creation, in conscience, in image bearers of God, in history repeating itself, in scripture being culturally relevant in every single season of human history and speaking to the human condition, the unspeakable, unchanging truth of God's word. We have all these different things that speak to and bear witness about the invisible God and his faithfulness. So by faith, we understand what? The universe was created by the word of God. Was I there to see it? Were you there to see it? No. We take God at his word, not blindly, but based on the experience and the evidence that I already have of God. So that what is seen wasn't made out of things that are visible. So the physical realm we see, the world we live in, is the product of God's invisible spiritual word. So, so far, according to Hebrews 11, just the contextual the concise statement of what faith is. Faith is assurance rooted in understanding, specifically of God's promises being the gospel. So there's all these different elements that come together, right? By faith, we understand. You can't believe in something you don't understand. But faith also informs our understanding of how we see and process the world. So faith becomes the way I reason through the world, the way I evaluate the world. Faith is the lens through which, you know, my reasoning faculties operate. Faith. Not blind faith. Lots of evidence. Faith also has the element of hope. Eager expectation. Guaranteed. Assurance. I'm convinced. All those elements come together in faith. I'm convinced. I believe. I'm assured. I hope for what God has said with eager expectation. And I understand what I believe. Doesn't mean you have to understand the full scope of who God is and all. He's completely incomprehensible, but knowable. Right? We can know him. But you can't fully understand the depths of even one of his attributes. It's how high he is above us. Faith by definition. Let's go to John 3.16. We're gonna truck along. I've done my best to anticipate every possible argument someone could bring against this. I know I cannot cover all my bases, but I've done my due diligence in at least protecting from the typical arguments. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, this is why. It's so that this is now the potential, this is now the opportunity that is possible because of what God has done. God loved the world. He gave his son. Christ laid down his life willingly so that, here's the result, whoever believes in him should not perish but have, possess eternal life. Now, faith is an action word. If I tell you to believe me that maybe there's not something you can physically do with your body, 
but you can choose to believe that's an action, okay? Faith or to believe on both lordship and free grace theology, they both agree to believe is to have faith in or to trust in or to rely on, to rest in. And it usually involves an entrusting of self. The Greek word for believe here in John 3.16 is more philosophical in nature, meaning it's dealing with the intellect. It's a conscious intellectual decision, but made by an individual. I am choosing to believe. I'm choosing to rely on what you've said. I'm choosing to take you at your word and believe it is true. Now, the word uh, in the Greek for believe comes from the root word. I'm going to mispronounce this. Petho. P-E-I-T-H-O. Petho. Not pesos. Petho. To head off a lisp. To affirm. This is the root word. Pietho, however you pronounce it. The root word of believe, it means to affirm or to be confident of. The other root word for belief, believe in John 3.16, is the word pistis. Be careful how you say that. Pistis. Faith. To be persuaded of. Now, there are some free grace individuals who will only define faith as simply being persuaded of something. Now, I'm going to show you why I don't think that is entirely correct. I'm going to do my best to not, I'm not attacking any one or any person or any camp. Just what is said. That's all the ideas. Okay, so to believe, at least in the Greek here, the two root words of the word believing, it's affirming to be confident of, and to be persuaded of. That's why believing is to trust, to rely on, to have faith in, okay? Now in Hebrew thought, I'm not saying Hebrew and Greek are at odds here, but there's another dimension to the Hebrew idea of faith that when you carry it over into the Greek idea of believing in the Son, it doesn't always carry that well. Not an issue of Greek lexicon, not an issue of P translators, just an issue of ancient cultures think differently than other cultures. So in Hebrew thought, according to the Torah, according to their scriptures, this is how faith is usually defined. And I'm going to use the Hebrew word emunah, okay? In Hebrew thought, faith is also an action, just like in the Greek. To believe is something you choose to do. Faith is an action I take based off what they know to be true. Now, the Hebrew word for faith Emunah is understood in English to be faith or belief, okay? And this Hebrew word is more about what you do more than it is about what you know, okay? The word means to take firm action. Now, you might say, well, the action being taken is to believe in the Hebrew, right? <laughs> Ken's statement, they're adorable. Faith and belief go ha hold hands. The Hebrew word is more about, I'll say it again for those of you that want to take notes, in Hebrew thought, and again, this is not at odds with the Greek idea of faith, but in your typical ph philosophy kind of circles when it comes to Greek uh, intellectualism and the way they would explain believing, it's purely intellectual. It's dealing with the intellect. It's philosophical in nature. Hebrew thought is a little bit different in the sense that the Hebrew word is more about what you do more than it is about what you know, okay? In other words, when I believe Jesus is the Messiah, my faith doesn't change reality and make him the Messiah, right? We live in a culture where New Age theology, especially people that bring New Age into the Christian world, 
they'll typically make faith something you can actually use to manipulate the world. In other words, reality is based on your belief. And you can change reality based on your belief. That's not true. Reality is what it is, whether or not I believe it. I can choose to conform my beliefs to reality. I can choose to submit my beliefs to reality. And, or I can choose to deny what is true of reality and live in delusion. So faith doesn't change reality, right? But faith here, to take action, it literally means firmness. That's the literal meaning of the word uh, faith, emunah, in Hebrew. Firmness, steadfastness, which is rooted, of course, in God's faithfulness towards us. It's his initial love and faithfulness towards us. So the word emunah comes from the root word emun, which means to trust something is true. The root for idea for belief or faith in Hebrew is to be convinced something is true. The other half is the action I take based on what I'm convinced of. So there's the convincing side of things, the intellect. Then there's the action side of things, more of the, 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 the heart and the, I guess, the heart driving the lifestyle, which you might say, well, the action here is to believe. Well, when I'm convinced of something or persuaded something is true, that is often what free grace theology will restrict faith to. They'll say faith is simply being convinced or persuaded. Whereas in Hebrew thought, it's firmness, steadfastness. It's, it's to uh, take firm action on what you know to be true or convinced of. You can be convinced of something and not act on it. Um, or you can be not convinced of something and choose not to act on it. But either way, the action of believing is one thing, and then what I do with that belief and how I act on that is another thing. Let me take you to Habakkuk 2.4, okay? Be careful in the comments, you guys. Comments like Calvinism is poison, though I disagree with Calvinism. I probably won't say things like that. It's just, there's ways to explain things. Even if that's true, it might not be helpful for the people you're trying to reach. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Okay, the context overall starts here in verse 1. Okay, and this is Habakkuk the prophet speaking on behalf of God. And he says, hey, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower to look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answers Habakkuk, looking out to see what God will say. And the Lord says, hey Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. In other words, someone there's an ideal audience in mind that is going to read this vision that God is telling Habakkuk to make plain and write down on tablets. There's action going to be required by those who hear or read this vision if they truly understand and believe it. There's action. They will read it and then they will run. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up it is not, if it is not right. It is not upright within him. Okay. 
being those who do not heed the vision Habakkuk receives from the Lord. Be that the nation of Israel, be that the Chaldeans, who actually what is about to transpire is more about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now take note here of the running after the reading of the vision. Okay? Reading the vision, if you understand it, if you believe it, you will live by your faith, which in this context is to run and to escape the judgment God is bringing. Now watch. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. Okay? Wine. The drunkenness that results from that. He gathers for himself all the nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you've plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. This is specifically addressing King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. And Habakkuk will go on to speak woes. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire. He'll go on to talk about all that is done. Okay. Now, what's interesting about Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is the righteous, those who actually read and heed the vision that is awaiting its appointed time, those who heed, understand it, will run and end up living by their faith in what the Lord has spoken through Habakkuk. So this verse, I will say this, okay, because typically on the free grace side of things, they'll address this verse and speak of how, hey, this is talking about how a righteous person shall live spiritually in the sight of God, like to be alive with him forevermore in the new kingdom. Here's how someone will live by faith. I agree. We are spiritually made alive through faith. I only can stand in the presence of the Almighty by faith, right? I'm only righteous and justified by my faith in his son. I'm only going to see resurrection life and be glorified with his son because of faith. I agree. I agree. But specifically, the context here is not speaking of only spiritual eternal life for those who have faith in this. This is a foreshadowing of that. It's always been by faith. Understand that righteousness, justification, being right with God, being restored to the garden presence of the Lord has always been through faith. But the practical life here on earth is a reflection of that spiritual life. How do we know this? If you go to Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11, both of those passages, Paul's going to quote Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4. And specifically in those passages, I'm not going to get to them right now because there's more. I just want to note this. They're going to quote this passage, Paul will, in reference to eternal life. Regarding the new covenant in Jesus, we're positionally in Christ. And then typically people who make this only about spiritual life will run to those passages and say, well, here's how Paul used it in Romans 1. Here's how Paul used it in Galatians 3. But they fail to look at Galatians 2 verse 20. Which sounds very much like what's being said in Habakkuk 2. So go to Galatians chapter 2. I am, I am admitting that New Testament passages will use Habakkuk 2.4 about new life in Christ in the new covenant through faith. I'm not disagreeing. 
Galatians 2.20 though, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, that's talking positionally before God spiritually, my new life is his, right? But Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh. Okay, so here's the difference. I, there's spiritual life, and then there's practical living. Paul's speaking on both. Watch. I have been crucified with Christ. That I is the old self that I used to identify with. That's no longer who I am. That is an old dead self that was separated from God, was nailed to the cross with Christ. He paid for that. He made way for me to come alive. That old self has been crucified with Jesus. Therefore, it's no longer I, old me, who is alive, right? I don't identify with that old self anymore. But it's Jesus who lives in me. He is my life. He is my new spiritual life. The life I have is his. It should be lived for him. Now, that spiritual life, that positional life that I have in Christ by being grafted into him is different than the life here that's lived in the flesh. There's a distinction. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. If righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. So the point of this passage is to drive home. You and I are only made righteous through faith. Not in my works, not in what my parents told me, not in what my pastor says, not in my ability to sustain myself and my obedience, not in my adherence to the law. My faith is in Jesus alone. He did what I can't. He did the superior work. I'll never do anything that is anywhere close to what he's done for me. My faith is in him. That's why I am righteous. That's why you are righteous. So the, the crux of this is righteousness comes through faith not the law. But the distinction is being made between now that I'm positionally, spiritually alive in Christ, I am a new creation. I have new spiritual life. Well, I'm going to live in this flesh. That's the practical lifestyle. I'm going to live that life by faith. In other words, living by faith here has to do with how I live in this human body. It's not just talking about, hey, you're spiritually alive and you're alive by faith and you're living by faith. It's now the practical outworkings of that in the fleshly body with your human life here on earth that is going to end. This life is going to end. This body will waste away. I will graduate to a new glorified body. Until then, I'm living in this fleshly body. And while I do, I'm living this life not just being alive spiritually, I'm living this life, doing with my body by faith. So when you go to Habakkuk 2 verse 4, okay, Habakkuk not only foreshadows the future reality of eternal life through faith in the Messiah, and also the reality that faith has always been the means by which someone is justified, but there's a physical type and shadow in, in this context being used 
to demonstrate that spiritual reality of life by faith. So faith has always been God's method of salvation. We understand that. But the rest of Habakkuk will speak of the wicked things that the people are doing and the good they are not doing. It's a vision of coming judgment. That's what Habakkuk is receiving, a vision of coming judgment. And the people who believe the vision, who read it, who understand it, and who run to escape the coming judgment because they actually do what the Lord says, well, those people will live physically by their faith. Not spiritually, not salvation, this physical salvation from the judgment coming upon the enemies of God. So they will live by their action rooted in their belief and faith in the message of God through the prophet. So the Hebrew word for faith is not just about what I know to be true. It's not just being convinced or persuaded intellectually, okay? The Hebrew word for faith is rooted in what I know to be true. It's an action word. And yes, to faith or to believe is an action I take. But you might say that the, the faith that's initiated when I come to Christ and believe the gospel will set in motion not just a spiritual life by which I live in faith positionally, but a practical life by which I live by faith. Now, I'll address the typical arguments people will bring up against this idea as best as I can, okay? But you can read the rest of Habakkuk to read the judgment and the things the people are doing and the things they're not doing. So the, the living by faith here is an actual doing with the life. Okay, the main action of faith is choosing to believe. We understand that. Um, uh, let me show you something. Faith so far is being so convinced that the gospel is true or that God's word is true that you actually live by that faith. You understand, you are persuaded, and you do trust in Jesus. And faith always has a witness. We'll get to that, okay? We'll get to much more on this whole idea when we get to the episode on fruit and action. So hold all of your disgruntled arguments. Hold all the things you want to say against what I've said. I will address this. I'm going to put a pause on this. We'll sidebar it, and we'll come back to this in future episodes when, it, when we talk about faith in fruit and in action. Okay? I'm not done. I'm just moving forward. Faith also, biblically, is a gift from God, not in the Calvinistic way. Calvinistic theology says faith is a gift God gives arbitrarily at random to people and then some he doesn't give that faith to because their understanding of total depravity says that no person has the ability to even respond to the message of the gospel of their own free will. I do believe faith is a gift, biblically, but not the way the Calvinist typically frames it up as being a gift. Here's what I mean. The gospel message received, when I receive the gospel in faith, when I'm convinced and believe and take God at his word and trust him, right, and receive that, the faith that I have is the product of the gospel I heard. If you read the parable of the sower, 
the gospel, the, the word of God is seed being planted in hearts. It's either going to produce faith or it's not, right? Some people are hard. Some people are shallow ground and there's too much rock. Some people are thorny and the, the, the fruit mainly, I believe in the parable of the sower, is faith. It's faith. Now, the gospel message, if we can agree on one thing, it's the message that produces faith in me. Okay? Romans 10 verse 14. Because I know some of you are thinking, how can faith be a gift but not a gift the way the Calvinist says it's a gift. Here's how. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? This is Paul saying, we really need preachers. How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? He'll go on, oh, how awesome it is for those who obey the gospel. We'll get to that obedience in a minute. But know this. Faith is the product of the gospel being received, right? Faith is the product of the message landing on soft ground. And it's the gospel seed, the message, that actually produces the beautiful thing we call our faith. When I receive it and it falls on good ground, the faith that's produced through that gospel, because you can't believe in a message you've never heard. You can't believe in a message you don't understand. So you both have to hear it and understand it in order to believe in it. Therefore, faith requires hearing and understanding. That's why Paul says what he says. Now you go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Here's what I mean. It's a gift from God. And I'll kind of list it out for those of you that want to take notes. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I have 11 pages of notes. We are currently on page 4. Buckle up. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, by grace, God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor and kindness towards us, that grace, which is a free gift that we can't earn, we don't deserve, we're not entitled to it, by that grace, you've been saved through your faith. Now watch, this, whatever this is, it is not your own doing. You did not do it. You did not earn it. You did not work for it. This is not the product and and the result of your efforts. You did not do anything to get whatever this is. It, whatever it is, okay, it is the gift of God. Now you say, it's grace. Well, grace by definition is a free gift. So Paul's not saying, great gift is a gift. Okay, so... I don't believe that's what's happening. We also know it's not a result of works. He's already said that it's not your own doing so that no one can boast about what? About having this. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ for those good works, which by the way, God prepared beforehand for you to walk in those good works you've been created and prepared for. So when it comes to this, I think contextually, and there's some good videos you can read. Uh, You can't read a video. There are good videos you can watch um, where Greek teachers and scholars will explain the actual semantics of this in Greek. For me, it's... I don't understand anything that's happening. But I'll just... Here's what happens. 
this, okay, what he just spoke about, I believe is the being saved. Now hold on, that doesn't mean faith is not involved. What I am saying is that the Calvinists will typically say, hey, this faith is a gift, you didn't do it, you didn't consciously make the choice, God gave it to you or he didn't give it to you, and I go, whoa, no, no, no. You being saved through your faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In other words, here's a breakdown of what it means that faith is a gift and the salvation that results from this faith is also a gift. Number one, faith is a gift of God because God makes provision for our faith to matter. Think about it. If there's no provision, if there's no atonement, if there's no son laying down his life, paying for our sins, if there's no promise of God and God validating his son, if none of that happens, if Jesus never becomes the way and never dies our death or resurrects from the grave, if that never happens, then you can believe all you want. If God does not ordain that your faith amounts to salvation, then faith doesn't matter. In other words, faith matters because God has sovereignly decided in his own wisdom that faith amounts to something. He decided, I didn't write the script. I didn't come to God and say, you know what, God, he could make this thing a little easier if you just make people believe. He's like, hmm, you know what? I'm gonna make faith amount to something. He decided way before we ever discovered faith that the way people come to me the way I reward or, or grant them inheritance is through faith. Faith. And you can't take credit for that because even though you chose to believe and you made a conscious free will decision, you don't decide that what is resulting from your faith is actually what you get. God decides the results of your faith. He provides the means to make our faith amount to what it does. And so God sovereignly makes faith to be the fruit of the gospel. Remember how God brings the growth, Paul says, I water, Paulos, you know, uh, all this stuff he talks about, God brings the growth, right? So if there's no gospel coming your way, faith can't happen. What, what are you going to believe in? I just believe in a God. Believe what? Oh, just that he's there. Okay. You can believe all you want. If God doesn't ordain that your faith amounts to something, all of our believing is for nothing. All of our believing is for nothing. God sovereignly makes faith to be the fruit of the gospel. Just like vegetation produces after its own kind, just like animals produce after their own kind, just like humans produce after their own kind, God says the gospel will produce after its own kind and faith will be what's produced. The third thing is that God is the one who brings the gospel to your ears so you can even respond in faith. Because you can go, I believed. You don't get any credit. You're not the, the, oh, look, I believed. You don't get like all the glory and the credit as the one who earned anything. Number one, God makes the gospel possible. He makes it a reality. He sent his son. Number two, he makes your faith the product of the gospel. Number three, God actually is the one who brings the gospel to your ears so you can even respond. Number four, right? God makes our conscious decision to believe amount to all that it does. Think about it. Um, 
Think about everything you get the microsecond you believe in Jesus. The microsecond you believe. What do you get? I'm closing down TikTok because it's not working. So sorry, everyone on TikTok. Come to YouTube. What do you get? You get righteousness. You get salvation. You get justified in the sight of God. You get a relationship with the Father. You get the inheritance of His Son. You get right standing. You get to be a child. You're forgiven. You're blameless. You're eternally secure. You have the Spirit of God indwell you. You're a new creation. You get a new heart. You get the promise of eternal life forever and the glory. You get all of that. All of that. Does it not seem like the reward is disproportionate to what's required of us? That'd be like me saying to my son, Hey, son, can you like, I have like a piece of trash in my pocket. Hey, can you like go throw this away for daddy? Sure, dad. Throws it away and I'm like, son, because you did that, I bought you a new mansion. I bought you a Lamborghini. I'm going to make you the estate of everything, I, the, the, the head of the estate that I have. I'm going to give you all the money I have in my account. I will, I will literally, any, for the rest of your life, do, do whatever it is you want. You know, I'm not saying this is a perfect parallel, but the, the point still stands. You'd be like, that's outrageous. That's insane. He just threw a piece of trash away. He's five years old. And I'd go, oh, I can give whatever I want. And though it doesn't make sense and it's disproportionate to what he did, that's what makes it grace. That's what God does for us, man. Uh, you, you think believing? I, I heard it like this, okay? Believing is easy. Like, it's simple. Believe, right? At the same time, it's so easy that no one wants to do it. Think about all the unbelievers in the world. No one wants to do that. It's humiliating, right? It requires you to bow the knee and say, I... I I can't save myself. You, you save me. I'm relying on you. It, you have to admit that you have faults, that you don't meet the standard of God. You have to admit you're helpless. I mean, no one wants to do that. It's so simple. God in his sovereignty has done something so incredible. And look at all that it amounts to. So yeah, faith is a gift in that sense. God doesn't arbitrarily decide you get faith to be saved and I created you to go to hell forever. That doesn't seem to be consistent with the character of God. Okay. Believing is also a conscious free will decision. Now listen, Calvinist brothers and sisters, for those of you that truly believe you are so depraved apart from Christ that you can't even, you don't have the willpower or the conscious ability to even believe. Listen, I'm not saying faith is a meritorious work. It's not what I'm saying. So God still gets all the glory. I'm not saying faith merits us righteousness. It magnifies God's grace that he allows our faith to amount to that. What I am saying is that faith is a choice. I'm just going to bring up one passage. And then I'm going to bring up how faith is actually obedience to a command, which therefore... I think requires that you have the ability to meet that command or not meet it. John 20, Jesus tells Thomas, the other disciples say to Thomas, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said, Meh. unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's his choice, isn't it? He's deciding that. God ain't forcing him to do that. It's a free will decision Thomas has made. 
Once I have my conditions met, then I'll believe. Well, he gets the conditions met. Jesus says to Thomas, hey, what's up, boy? Heard you're looking for me. Put your finger here. See my hands? Touch it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, go ahead. Touch it. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Jesus tells Thomas to believe. But Lord, he can't. He's... He's been decided by God before he ever existed that he's condemned to hell and doesn't have the capacity to believe. He can't. <gasps> oh, wait, it's a choice. It's a choice, isn't it? Believing faith is obedience. It can't be obedience. It can't be legitimate free will obedience unless there is free will. So why does Romans 10:16 tell us that people obeyed the gospel? Well, you know, when they believe, they go out and do stuff. Nope. They just do the work of the Father, the will of the Father, which is to believe. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Well, that's not believing. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So, faith comes from and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, before you go into the, what about deaf people? What about people who can't see? Hearing... It's not just limited to the ears. It's becoming aware of the information. Does that make sense? So faith comes from hearing. You gotta be aware of what's happening, what he's done for you, and you have to understand that. And then believing here is obeying the gospel. Acts 5.32. That's why I said this is the deepest, most comprehensive study I've ever done on faith and teaching. Acts 5.32. We are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, you can infuse, well, this is water baptism. Well, this is doing enough good. Well, this is validating faith with good works. And then God gives the Spirit. Nope. No, no, no. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3 tells us the Spirit is given as a guarantee for the day of redemption, the microsecond you what? Believe believe. So the obedience here, the obeying God has to be what? Faith. That means it's a conscious free will decision to obey God or not to obey God. Otherwise, God can't really hold you accountable for something he didn't predestine you to do. Acts chapter 6 verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a bunch of the priests became what? Obedient to the faith. Well, you know, that's, that's people doing what's consistent with the faith they have, and they're, they're putting their faith in action. They're evangelizing. They're obeying. They're going and being sanctified. They're living holy. They're resisting sin. They're fighting the good fight. Really? I think becoming obedient to the faith is very simply what we've seen in Acts 5 and Romans 10 to believe and obey the gospel. That's the work of the Father. Romans 1 verse 5, man. The list goes on and on. I'm just, this is, this is like a pause. I'm addressing Calvinist brothers and sisters. Romans 1 5. Jesus, our Lord, through the resurrection of the dead, through whom we've received grace, apostleship. Why? Why has Paul been commissioned to be an apostle? Well, part of his mission is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. 
among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus, Paul sums up his ministry purpose in I'm calling people, calling people in the world to obey the faith. What do you mean obey the faith? Do what God has said. Well, what's that? Believe on the Son. It can't be that easy. It is. That's the main command. That's the will of the Father. That's the work of the Father. That's what all it requires to have everything Christ has made available is belief. I don't know about that, really. John 3.36. John 3.36, man. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Aha! It says believe. Whoever does not obey the Son won't see life. What life? This eternal life right here, bruh. That's the life. So why is believing contrasted with not obeying? Because if you want eternal life, you've got to believe, which is to obey the Son. If you don't want to see life, then you won't obey the Son, and you won't believe in the Son. That's what it means. The wrath of God remains on those who what? Don't obey or believe in the Son. It's obedience. It's an actual conscious free will decision, man. 1 John 3, 23, last one, I promise. This is his commandment. Okay, God commands something. God commands something. That we believe, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Well, there's love, there's, there's you backloading faith with stuff you have to do. Now, hold on. I'm not saying we won't do stuff. We'll get to fruit. I'm just saying faith right here, very clearly, is the commandment of God. So why is this singular one commandment both believing and loving? That's when we'll get to the fruit, the whole fruit conversation. Because I, I am not convinced, I don't want to spill the beans yet. But listen, believing to have eternal life to be justified and righteous, that single commandment God gives is believing and loving. How can two things be one commandment? We'll get to that. Just know he's commanded people to believe. John 6, 29. Spill, spill, spill. No, no, no. No, 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 Ken. John 6, 29. They go, what, what, what can we be doing to do the works of God? They're asking for something to do. Tell us what to do. Jesus, God, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. You need to do something you ain't willing to do. What's that? This is the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. They wanted something else, man. They're like, tell us to cast out demons. Tell us to go and bring an offering. Tell us to bring a sacrifice. Tell us something to do. What, what does God really want of us? He's like, okay, believe. Ah, man. Give us a sign so that we may believe you. How can something be a work to do, a command to obey, if it's not a free will decision to believe the gospel? Faith, by definition as you're about to see, is a singular event that takes place in your life. There was a single moment. You can't always identify it. You're not always aware of it. You're might, you might not even be like 
consciously aware of the fact that it's happening, there is one moment in your life where you heard the gospel and you were convinced. You said, this is true. I believe what God is declaring about his son. I take God at his word. That single event grants you everything that you have now and everything you'll have for all eternity. That's insane. The question becomes, is faith merely a single event that takes place in a moment of time, or is faith a lifelong action? This is the age-old debate. This is the age-old debate. So can I believe now, be convinced, walk away, let's do an insane hypothetical that free grace individuals don't like because like don't live in hypotheticals. That's not gonna happen. We don't see it happening. We've never seen it happen. Fine, the hypothetical still stands, which is that if you, are, if you go, I believe right now, yes, I'm convinced. I'm for sure in, I believe the message I'm hearing. And then you go off and you murder people and you worship Satan for the rest of your life, deny God and say he doesn't exist. Everything I believed, it's a farce. I don't believe any of it. And then you, for the rest of the next 80 years of your life, complete, the worst wicked Hitler, you put Hitler to shame. That kind of life of just rejection, you're coming against Jesus. As an atheist, you're preaching against the gospel, saying don't, don't follow Jesus, he's fake. Is that moment in time where you said, I truly believe, was that really faith? According to scripture, not according to our own experiences, not according to your own presuppositions, not according to what you think God should do, but when we read scripture, is faith going to be something that happens lifelong, that can't be broken, it's, a, it's an unbreakable chain, right? Or is it just an event, okay? Here's what you need to understand. What you believe matters, like a lot. What? you believe about the Son matters. First John chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. Now for those of you that are just jumping in an hour into this stream, hello, I would encourage you to rewind and don't start right now where we are live, or you'll be so confused. You will be. Uh, you'll be throwing stones, you'll be throwing out arguments that I've already addressed, and you'll look silly. 1 John 2, 22-24. It says, Who is the liar except he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. Now, there's a spirit of Antichrist. It is to be opposed to the Son. He who denies the Father and the Son, that's Antichrist. No one who denies the Son, his divinity, his work, his sufficiency, his exclusivity, the Son, and First John will go to clarify, like, you have to believe he is the Christ, that he really came in the flesh. You can't deny his humanity and say that he's the sacrifice for humanity's sin. You can't deny his divinity and say that he's the sufficient payment. These two things have to be held in tandem. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now is this mere confession? We'll talk about that when we get to. Is confession, 
always legitimate evidence of genuine faith? Or can faith be without a verbal confession? We'll get to that. Just know what you believe about the Son matters. When it comes to faith, you say, I believe in Jesus. What Jesus? The Mormon Jesus? The Jehovah's Witness Jesus where he's a created being? The Mormon Jesus where he's the brother of Satan? And he's created and he's one among many? Um, the, the Muslim Jesus where he's just a prophet and he didn't really die? What Jesus? First John 4, 3 and 4, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Now, according to John, there are some non-negotiables. To be a part of the, the camp or spirit of Antichrist, which of course is linked to one that will come, that will kind of be the summation of those ways. To be in that is to deny the humanity or the messiahship, if that's a word, of Jesus as the only begotten son and the only messiah from God. Now, this is where we get into what, and again, so everyone is clear, because I know people are coming in and they're leaving and I'm gonna state this several times throughout each of these lives. This is just one among many. After listening to over 30 hours of the top tier level free grace individuals and being a part of Lordship Salvation for a, a large chunk of my Christian life, you're, I'm not someone who's uneducated or doesn't know what he's talking. Like I'm telling you, I've heard the arguments on both sides. I've heard the way they parse out James 2 and the way they parse out Romans 5. I've, I've heard both sides, how they convincingly drive home their conclusions. I've heard why they believe what they believe. And so, yeah, don't preach to the choir is all I'm saying. What I'm about to say comes from a place of knowing what both camps say about this. I'm not un uninformed. I didn't read this and go, I think after weighing what I heard on both sides, this is what I've come to, and I don't think it actually fits perfectly into either free grace or lordship. That's what's um, so nuanced about this and difficult to do. Now, I'm gonna take you to John 8. John 8. Typically what happens here is the free grace individual uh, I've already addressed lordship individuals, but the free grace individual in John 8, which, brothers and sisters, they'll say here that there are individuals who believe in verse 30. There's a crowd of Jews. This is typically how it's framed up. And I heard, I heard the teacher say this. That the, within the crowd of Jews that Jesus is speaking to, there's one group that believes and there's one group that doesn't believe and a lot of those unbelievers have actually are Pharisees or religious leaders or scribes, okay? So we have these two groups identified throughout John chapter 8. Now verse 30 says, many believed in him and they'll say they are saved. I have a problem with that because there's a lot of assumptions that are being brought to the text. And number two, because Jesus actually tells us, I think, gives us enough hints to clearly identify who it is that's believing, what it means that they believed, 
And I don't think we can say, because what free grace, free grace individuals will say here is in John 8, there are those who believe, they're saved. And then Jesus turns around and says to the Jews, y'all still condemned in sin. Y'all still enslaved to sin as a master. Uh, you don't know me. You're actually of your father, the devil. And then they kind of turn around and they go, well, Jesus isn't talking to those who believed in him. He's talking to the religious leaders or scribes or Pharisees or, or the unbelievers in there. I have an issue with that because the text doesn't actually delineate. So I'm going to take you all the way back to verse 12. We're going to read this and I'm going to show you that the kind of belief we have matters. There are actually biblically these different, if you want to call them categories, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying categories of faith because then it's like, well, how do you get to the next category? How do you level up? That's not what I'm trying to insinuate. What I am trying to show you is that there seems to be this mere acknowledgement or agreement with a set of facts or information that doesn't amount to any spiritual insight or reception, okay? And I don't think I'm making the distinction between heart level faith and head level faith. I don't know if that is a legitimate thing to draw out from the text. But in John 8, verse 12, we're going to start there. Uh, before we do, we're going to go on a potty break because that's just how your boy rolls. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338 uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly clearly, so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we... Um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. All right. John 8, we're going to take the whole chapter as a, as a one literary unit. Okay. It's just helpful to do that. Starting in the beginning, whether you believe John, the beginning of John 8 belongs in the original manuscripts, not a question for today. Verse 12, Jesus spoke to them. 
Now what I've done is I've highlighted as helpfully as I can the, the different audiences that are in play. Jesus spoke to them. It's one audience. Saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But they will have, what? The light of life. Okay? So, already, um, this is not they will continue to enjoy the light of life. This is not there will be an experience of the light. Even though it was, this is, hey, following Jesus, at least as he describes it here, whoever follows me is the way you come out of darkness. Now, we've already determined that is faith. But it's interesting the way it's framed up. The way that Jesus actually describes what is required of us to have salvation and come out of spiritual darkness and be translated into the kingdom of light. He describes faith as following him. And he said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is, John opens his gospel by saying, Jesus brought the light of men. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So you either have life or you don't. There's no in-between. Well, you're, you're almost there, buddy. You almost have life. Keep trying. You either have the sun or you don't. You either believe or you don't. It's pretty black and white. Now, in verse 12, following Jesus is not walking in darkness, which I believe is to come out of unbelief into faith, to have the light of life. But it's interesting that he calls it following him. Now, the Pharisees, here we have the Pharisees. Ooh, everyone boo the Pharisees. Boo, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. A lot of them are nice. Not all Pharisees are bad. So the Pharisees said to him, sometimes I forget I'm not talking to my five-year-old, I'm talking to you guys. So the Pharisees said, hey, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. Pharisees obviously deny Jesus's confession that essentially he's the light of the world. He's the light of life that we see all throughout the Old Testament foreshadowed. He's essentially saying he's God in the flesh. Oh, you're, we don't believe you. Boo. <laughs> Tough crowd. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is still true. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. What's interesting is that assurance of who Jesus is within himself. He actually grants to his people. We see this in the end of 1 John chapter 5. That you can actually know you have eternal life. I write these things to you that believe so you can know you have eternal life. You can know where you're going. You can know where, and you can know where your spiritual eternal life essentially was sourced in and came from. And that being Christ himself. There's this kind of cool thing going on where he's going to share that, that identity and assurance of self. Not like, I'm God. I, I'm not. Jesus is. But that assurance of, I know where I came from. I know who my father is and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from and you don't know where I'm even going. Okay, keep that in mind. The people he's talking to right here, it says them and the Pharisees answer. Okay, so is Jesus initially talking to the Pharisees? We can't say for sure, but we do know the Pharisees at least are present to answer back. And Jesus goes, you don't know where I came from um, and you don't know where I'm going. Jesus will say that in John 14 as well to the disciples, except they'll say, where are you going? And he'll tell them, and you know the way I'm going. So verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. E even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Now we're talking about faith still. I'm just going to show you what faith is biblically. 
Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. It's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, in your law, it's actually written that the testimony of two people is true, right? And they would go, yes. He goes, I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me too. There's your two witnesses, bro. And they said, well, they. Who's he been talking to? Well, it seems like the Pharisees are in mind here, the religious leaders, okay? He said to them, um, or they said to him, where's your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. What's the accusation? You don't know my father. You don't know God. You don't. And he'll tell them in John 5, you search the scriptures, you search the law of Moses, looking for life when I'm the life it points to. And you don't know me. You don't know the father. These are some pretty strong accusations. Keep them in mind, okay? Because it's going to seem like he's toggling in between different categories of people. The text doesn't indicate that. They said to him, where's your father? And he said, if you knew me, you'd know my father. These words he spoke in the treasury as he's taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. It's important to know. So he said to them again. Now watch, he's answering the very people he was previously talking to, which mostly, the, at least the most vocal individuals, seem to be the Pharisees, if there's anyone else present, which you're about to see, there are other people present. So he said to them again, I I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. This is like accusation number 300. Okay, you don't know me, you don't know my father, um, uh, you judge according to the flesh, you don't know where I'm going, you don't know where I came from. And essentially, you don't have the light of life. So the Jews said, it doesn't say the Pharisees, just, just note that. Just note that. It does not say the religious leaders, John could have specifically noted, that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are the ones talking here. It doesn't say that. The Jews said, will he kill himself? Which, by the way, it's a dark path to go down. That's like your only option. Where I'm going, you cannot come? Is that what he means? Like he's just going to end his life? He said to them, well, now who's the them? Well, you could say, well, the Pharisees are Jews, so obviously he's talking to the religious leaders still. Ah, that's an assumption. Just because they're Jewish... I think John will delineate very clearly when he's talking to who, when he needs to, to make that distinction. Okay, he has not. It's just going to continue to say them. So the Jews were the last people to talk. Jesus answers who? The Jews, which seem to be distinct from the Pharisees, if you want to go that route. They're at least around, okay? Um, he said, you are from below. Whoa, I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. It sounds like a lot, a lot like what he told Nicodemus. If you don't understand what I'm telling you, how can you tell? How can you understand things from heaven? I told you you would die in your sins. Now watch, unless you believe I am He, you're gonna die in your sins. He's warning them. Who's he warning? The Jews and the religious leaders both. They all y'all, all y'all dead if you don't believe I am he. Now that's an Old Testament reference to God often saying I am he, unless you know that I am he, I alone am he. 
I am the Lord your God. It's a, it's a callback to Jesus affirming his divinity, as subtle as it may be to us. He goes, if unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. And so they said, who, who are you? Now who's the they telling Jesus, wondering who he is? Well, John doesn't really distinguish between, are they the religious leaders or are they the Jews? He seems to kind of mesh them into the same kind of crowd as if they're kind of in the same uh, mental state, as if they're speaking from the same position. They're kind of, they're not believing Jesus yet, so they're kind of of the same breed so far in the same crowd. Who are you? Jesus said, well, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. What's that? That's why we're asking. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but you know, he who sent me is true. By the way, you don't know him, I already told you that. And I declare to the world what I've heard from him. Now watch, this is so important, man. They actually read the text carefully. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. Now hold on. Does true faith require legitimate understanding? Can you truly believe in something you don't understand at all? Right? Or does faith assume and require a level of understanding? I would say faith requires, at least biblical faith, to take God at his word. You have to understand what he's saying. If I just say, hey God, believe. You'd be like, believe what? You just spoke gibberish. I'd be like, if you were really spiritual, you'd get it. They need to understand. That's why Paul talks about persuading and the Bereans searching the scriptures. They're seeking to understand and see if things are true. Faith is not to the neglect of the intellect. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Now, now the, often the argument will be, well, it's specifically understanding, not understanding, that he was speaking about the Father. Well, I think there's no understanding whatsoever. You don't know where I come from. You don't know where I'm going. You don't know my Father. You don't know me. You don't know your own condition and your own hard heart. Like, you're unaware of your own, like, depravity. There's a lot of lack of understanding going on within the crowds. So Jesus says to them, look, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, is this a general you or a specific you? You have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. Now hold on. He just said, hey, you can't have life or you can't be free from your sins unless you believe that I am He. That's a requirement. So what do they need to understand? They need to understand what? Who Jesus is in relation to the Father. If they don't understand that, they'll die in their sins. That's what he's saying. So you got two options. Die in your sin and not understand or believe Jesus or be alive and have the light of life and understand and believe who Jesus is. Now look at the time marker. He says, then you'll know that I am he when? When you've lifted up the Son of Man. Now, this doesn't mean that no one up to this point can believe anything about Jesus. Because remember, everyone had an idea of what the Messiah should be and should do. You know, so when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, they think, Rome's going down. 
They think we're about to conquer and pillage. It's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to be... They assume Jesus is saying he's something that he's really not. So even just to believe Jesus is Messiah in their mind requires some correction. So know this. There's a time marker. Essentially, he's telling them, you won't believe I am he until what? Until you've lifted up the Son of Man, referring to his execution and the crucifixion. So when you've done that, here's the time marker, then, then you'll know that I am he. Essentially, true faith for at least these crowds, at least these crowds, the faith that he is who he says, okay, the time marker for that, this time stamp, it requires the crucifixion firstly. Now they can have a degree, they can have a belief about Jesus, they can believe he is something and will do something. But Jesus has already clarified. And he has not, like he's, he said this, you don't understand where I come from, where I'm going, who I am, who my father is. And guess what? Even as he's talking, it's not becoming any clearer. So it's not like Jesus is being like, guys, look, I'm telling you I'm God in the flesh, the Messiah, the eternal word emanating from the father. I'm, I'm him. I'm here. I'm here to save you. He doesn't make it any more clear. He actually gets more vague. And there's intentionality behind that for the season that Israel's in. He's vague on purpose. And that vagueness allows them to believe a set of things about him, but not believe who he really is, where he came from, where he's going, who his father is, no understanding present, right? Until they really see in hindsight the Messiah. That's why Peter's going to get up on the day of Pentecost, preach a very simple Jewish message, and it's going to blow the minds of the crowds because now they can look back at the crucifixion, see the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy, and go, oh, that's him. So guess what? He says, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as a father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, again, that's, that's clear enough to be like, okay, you said you speak as the Father taught you, and you don't do anything of your own authority, and that the Father sent you. You do the things that are pleasing to him. As he's saying these things, many believed in him. Now, what is this belief? This is the question at hand. Because some will say, they're saved. Like that's, that's, that's saving faith. And again, I understand the problem people have with using the terminology saving faith, but I use that for you guys because you understand what that is. Like that's common language in the Christian world. So when I say that, you go, oh, the faith that results in salvation. Is there a faith that does not? Well, sure. I can believe something about Jesus that isn't true. I can believe in a kind of Jesus, in a kind of Messiah, the, the Mormon Messiah, the Jehovah's Witness Messiah. I can believe in the Muslim, you know, Jesus. And just because I have faith about or in that person doesn't result in salvation. So there is a set of beliefs or a kind of faith that does not save. So what do you believe? Who do you believe? What do you believe he's done for you? The problem is the crowds Jesus is speaking to they don't understand. Now, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And we'll say, okay, let's say these people, 
at least as far as we can tell so far, are saved simply because of their faith. Or simply because there's, a, there's an acknowledgement of a set of facts and they agree with that information. Okay, let's just, I'll give you that. Let's read verse 31 and see if that still holds. Because remember, there's at least, there are the typical Jews who, by the way, still don't understand, still lack the knowledge and the, the understanding to even believe, it seems like, but I'll give you that maybe they do believe and they have eternal life right now and they're righteous. Verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. And this is key. This is, this is really where I wanted to, to park it. Lordship salvation is going to say something different than what I'm saying. Free grace theology is going to say something different than what I'm saying. So this is not me identifying with either camp. This is me identifying with scripture. If you abide in my word. What word? The word he's spoken. The testimony he's given of himself. The truth that he's given. If you abide in that you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So the people he's talking to that supposedly, or not supposedly, right? But they had a kind of belief in him. He's telling them something they don't yet understand. That you're actually enslaved to sin because of your practice to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. Go read Galatians and look at Ishmael and Isaac. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free. Did he change crowds? Did he change audiences? As if he was like, hey guys, you guys are good and saved. If you really want to be like a disciple though, because in free grace theology, there is the delineation between one who is a disciple and one who is a, uh, a believer, right? There's that distinction. And they go, hey, don't conflate discipleship with justification or sanctification with salvation. Okay, I won't. I won't. But they'll say about this text, that this is not saying you need to do this to be saved. He's telling those who already are saved and they already do believe that, hey, just abide and you'll be my disciples. The problem is he's also saying you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the condition is if you abide in my word. You're probably wondering where I'm going with this. I'm not going to use proof text because I'll be accused that you're just pulling these texts out of context. I'm actually not. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but I have about one, two, three, four, five, six other passages that I, I could have more, but I have six passages about faith and the continuing nature of actual legitimate biblical faith. And this is my first text. If you abide, remain, stay, continue. It's John 15. In my what? In my word. Why? Because the parable of the sower tells us the word needs to be planted to produce the fruit of faith. So if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And the free grace individual, the extremist, will say, 
And if you're in here going, I believe this, you're calling me an extremist. No, I'm just saying like there's extreme views within both camps. And if you identify with this, that's on you. But they'll say, look, there's a distinction between being a believer and being a disciple. Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are already believers, but if you want to be like disciples and, and grow in sanctification and put that faith to work, abide in my word. The problem I have with that is he is essentially saying, you guys believe, but you're not set free. Now you might say, well, because the cross hasn't been, uh, the atoning work of Christ hasn't been finished. He hasn't died and resurrected. So the freedom can't officially come. The payment hasn't been made in full, right? That's essentially what you're going to rebuttal with. Here's what we can go on to say. He says, you will know the truth. What's that mean? It means they don't yet know the what? The John 14. I am the way and the, the truth. They don't know that. They don't understand it. So what do they believe when it says they believed in him? What are they believing? Again, leading up to this text, it seems like there's lack of understanding. You might say one well, verse 30, everything clicked. And they understood because he went, I please my father and I came from him. So, so they understood. I'll give you that. The problem I have is that they believe, but they're not free and they don't know the truth. And they actually still deny their need to be set free from sin. Does that sound like belief in Jesus that saves? Does it sound like saving faith? And I know you're frustrated that I'm using that terminology, but I am trying to distinguish between like there is a, a mental assent and acknowledgement of a set of facts that can't save. And there's an actual like trust, belief in, reliance upon, that true faith actually is continuing by nature. If you abide, the remaining. Now, this is not a set of things to do, to be saved, or to stay saved. The point is, they don't yet, the abiding here is a continuing into the point where they understand and know the truth and are set free by it. They don't have that yet. So they go, well, we're not enslaved to anyone. Well, first of all, Rome? How about Babylon? How about Assyria? How about Egypt? You've never been enslaved to anyone? Are you guys high? Jesus answered them, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, the son. So if the son sets you free, you will be free. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Who's he talking to? Jesus answered them, well, that's the Pharisees and the unbelievers. John doesn't make that distinction. You can't say that. He says to the Jews who had believed, and he still continues talking to them once they share their peace. He continues talking to them. So guess what these people are? Still slaves to sin, don't know the truth, which I would say implies they don't understand. They're not free. They're seeking to kill him. They're going to put him on the cross. And guess what? His word finds no place in them, and yet they're said to believe. What do you do with that? What do you do with a person that even the biblical author will say, hey, they believed, but they didn't have a place for Jesus' word, didn't know where he was going, where he came from, who he was, who his father was. They don't admit their need to be set free from sin, which might even be denying their own sinfulness, and they're not free. They don't know the truth. What do you, what do you call that? 
Verse 38, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do, you do what you've heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham's our father. Hmm. Thank you. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. Whoa. That's a statement about faith that I'm going to need to pause on and get back to when we talk about fruit in the next episode. Actually, I might talk about repentance next. So next episode will probably be repentance. If conditional, you were Abraham's children, not talking about ethnically, not talking about physical descent, talking about having the same faith as Abraham, then you'd be doing the works Abraham did. What's the assumption? That to have the same faith as Abraham is going to apparently result in a kind of works that he did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did, man. Stop claiming Abraham as your dad. You're doing the works your father did. They said, and again, they, doesn't say religious leaders, doesn't say Pharisees. It's they, same people he's been talking to the whole time. He's having a one-on-one -on -one back and forth with the same people who John records as believing in him, but believing what? Believing what? Doesn't seem to be the truth. Doesn't seem to be consistent with understanding. And they said, we're not born of sexual immorality, which is essentially them accusing Jesus of, you know, being born out of um, uh, sin. We're not born of sexual immorality. We know Joseph and Mary did. Probably assume that Joseph and Mary did something wrong and that he, she was not a virgin, right? We have one father, even God. Jesus said, if God were your father, you'd love me. What's he saying? God's not your father. I came from God and I'm here. I came of my own accord. Came not of my own accord. He sent me. Why, why don't you understand what I say? Whoa, there we go. That verifies it. When I said that the people who are said to believe, they don't understand, Jesus himself verifies that. Why don't you understand what I say? You can't bear to hear my word. So there's no place for his word in them. They can't bear to hear his word. He's accusing them of wanting to kill him, which he's correct. He knows all hearts of men. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Just like you is what he's saying. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar, the father of lies. Kind of what we saw in 1 John. Here's the spirit of Antichrist. Who is the liar but he who denies the son? That's what they're doing. They're consistent with their father's character. Their spiritual father, because they're spiritual seed of the devil and the serpent. They're spiritual descendants of the serpent. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Whoa, hold on. John, you, you said they believed. Do we have a Bible error? No. Do we have an inconsistency? No. What Jesus wants is for them to actually hear his word, have space for his word, believe what he's saying, trust in what he's saying, and to believe what he is saying and have understanding premised upon that, premised, you know, beneath that. But he's saying, you don't believe the truth. John 14, I am the truth. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Now, you can't say, well, he's, he's talking to unbelievers when he says that. It's a back and forth, man. It started with the very people who supposedly believed in verse 30. 
So when you go, oh, them, 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 and you jump around and try and figure out Pharisees, religious leaders, unbelievers, you're, you're trying to force your ideas into the text that aren't there. John does not distinguish between different audiences. It's the same. Ba, ba, ba. Whoever is of God hears the word of God, which these people are not. The reason why you don't hear them is that you're not of God. Now, I'm going to put a pin here because I know some people are still frustrated. You're frustrated that there's a kind of believing that isn't actually rooted in truth or understanding or um, consistent with who Christ has revealed himself to be. That frustrates your theology, okay? So I'm going to put a pin in this. And then we're going to work our way back to this at the end of this episode. For now, uh, you can go on and t talk about how they want to kill him and they pick up stones and um, to stone him because he says, before Abraham was, I, I, before Abraham was, I am, you know, claiming to be divinity. You, you can go on and on. And Jesus himself accuses them of not understanding, not believing. You can't work around that. And just go, well, the religious leaders is who he's talking to. Doesn't say that, man doesn't say that. So I'm just going to give you one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, let's, let's do five texts. These aren't proof texts. These verify one another. A proof text is something that draws out an idea that isn't supported by the surrounding context and doesn't even align with the rest of scripture. This is not a proof text. I'm not just using this to support my point. But what I want to do is pause on the whole, there's a belief, a set of acknowledging a set of facts, agreeing with information that doesn't result in true faith, right? I'm going to put a pin in that. We'll continue that later. For now, know this. My point still stands about what I said here. The continuing nature of faith is what's in mind. Now, I don't believe Jesus is saying, hey, you guys believed. Sweet. As long as you keep believing, you'll really be free. Now, the fact that they're not free indicates they're not really believing yet. Once they do believe, there is still the requirement to abide in terms of not me straining and, and trying to put my efforts in. The point is, faith by nature here that they have not entered into is abiding. I'm going to say that again. He says, if you abide in my word, here's what will happen. What does that mean? To come into, to stay, to remain, that's what faith is. Then you go, that's drawing a lot out of the text. Not when I have five, six other texts that really speak to this. Now, I've heard people talk about 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So I, I'm of the belief that there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. Like, that's fine. We'll get to that with fruit. I'm showing my hand too early. But I don't disagree with a lot of free grace teachers where they say, 1 Corinthians is talking to believers. I agree. These are believers. He, they received it. They're standing on the truth. But there's also the continuing nature of our salvation, right? The threefold dimension of salvation. I have been saved. I am being saved. And then Romans talks about I will be saved. By which you're being saved if. You hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, when I hear free grace teachers explain this, typically they, they hone in just on this phrase. And they put all their eggs in that, this basket. It's like, let me show you why this is about. So I'll explain this real fast. He's not saying, hey, 
you believed in vain if you don't continue. <clears throat> what he's saying is, hey, if the resurrection isn't true, he's going to defend the resurrection. If the resurrection isn't true, then we've all believed in vain. If you scroll down to verse 11, he says, we preached and so you believed, so it's not in vain. The resurrection's legit. We agree on that. Sweet. So I don't need, I don't need to like hammer this unless you believed in vain. That's not the crux of my argument. The crux is, if you hold fast to the word I preached, Paul preached, they received, they're standing on it, they're being saved by it, but there's a holding fast to the word that becomes the condition by which the being saved is legitimately taking place. In other words, He's not denying their salvation or their assurance or their confidence or their security. What he's saying is, hold fast to it. Hold fast. Don't let go. It's the continuing nature of what faith is. And you go, why would God have to tell someone to continue if it was guaranteed? I think the very simple answer is that the very commands given in Scripture to continue are actually part of or support the methodology through which God actually continues someone into eternity. I do believe in eternal security. The holding fast here is going to be a natural byproduct of believing because faith itself is lasting by nature. By, by definition, faith does happen in a moment. Belief happens in a moment. But the continuing holding fast the being saved, right? That sanctification that comes as a result. I know some free grace individuals don't like saying sanctification is guaranteed. Okay, but I'm confident saying that it is. Like it is. We can talk about the nuance and the degree to which and all that. But let me jump to Colossians 1 because this is not even the bulk of this message. Colossians 1.23 you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to, here's why he's done this. Here's why he laid his life down and brought you to himself and reconciled you through laying down his life and becoming evil in our place and paying it in full. And in the body of Christ, evil was punished. Here's why. It's in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, that is not just talking about, well, in the future, we'll stand before it. It's now. Now you're holy. Now you're blameless. Now you're above reproach. For those that wonder why this ministry is called that, you can't really say you're above reproach. Scripture says that believers are above reproach positionally in Christ. So go figure that out. This is us now. But we will be, according to 1 John, revealed as such to the world, right? And we will stand before God as such. We won't become anything more than what we are now except a glorified body. But positionally, in Christ, right this second, I am everything I'll be in eternity, into eternity. Now watch. He says, this is why Jesus did this, to present you holy, blameless, above reproach, before the throne, essentially, if, if, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. There's that condition again. There's the continuing nature of the faith. Not to say they can't really know. There's, I'm going to address that. I know some 
free grace individuals will come in here and say, well, you can't really know you're saved if perseverance or, endure, or, or endurance is required or necessary fruit of faith or a necessary characteristic of faith. You can never know you're truly saved. I'm going to answer that in a little bit. Okay, hold on. But he says, if conditional, you continue, abide, stay, remain, persevere, endure in the faith, what the simple gospel, relying on Jesus. This is not works. So far, there's been nothing coming up about working and doing and activity and sustaining myself. It's believe on the Son alone. He's done everything for me. I've done nothing to aid him in saving me. I do nothing to help him keep me saved. My works don't uphold me. His grace does from start to finish. But the continuing in the faith, stable, Steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, is this continual reliance upon him. Is it perfect? Is it, is, am I every second of my life always depending on Jesus consciously? No, I don't do that. I'd love to, by the way. He says continue. And it's just what Jesus says in John 15. It's what he says in John 8. Abide in the word he said, that he alone saves. The only reason I'm going to stand before the Father, holy and blameless, is because what His Son has done for me. That's it. Point blank period, I'm saved through faith. But there is a stability and a steadfastness that comes from the assurance of our salvation and the nature of faith, characteristic of it, is enduring. Not shifting from the hope that you've heard. He acknowledges they're good, but there's also that condition, if, which is to say, the condition of the enduring and persevering or continuing plays a role in actually validating the presence of legitimate faith. Now, I'm going to answer the rebuttal I usually get, which is then you can never really know you're saved and it's subjective measurements. And it's up to the person to know if I've really endured enough. When do you endure enough? How do you know if you won't change your mind in the end on your deathbed and go, you know what, forget God, I'm an atheist. How do you know? We'll talk about that. It's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, if these passages on their own said what they said, it'd be fine. But Acts 14, 1 John 2, there's some scriptures we need to really think about. Acts 14, why does Paul do what he does? When they preached the gospel, this is Paul, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Why? Why go back to the cities where the churches are already you know, set and, well, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Which, by the way, for those that do say, well, a disciple different than a believer, so is Paul, like, only going to strengthen those who are devoted believers in Jesus? Like, he's, he's going to the Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and, hey, these disciples are only, like, those who take their faith seriously. The other ones are saved, but they're not really taking their faith seriously and following Jesus. So Paul's only strengthening them? Or is he strengthening all who call upon the name of Jesus in faith? I'm not conflating discipleship with justification. I don't see the distinction between disciple and believer. That's a different conversation. He encourages them to what? To continue in the faith. Continue what? relying on him alone, Jesus alone, believing in Jesus alone. You have all the heresies coming in about works and circumcision and don't eat this meat and don't have that and hey, you have to actually bring sacrifices and hey, you gotta, all, 
no works continue in the simple faith that Jesus alone saves me. That's it. I take God at his word. And he was saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, this doesn't necessitate tribulations as evidence of true faith. I know lots of unbelievers that have very difficult lives, right? So tribulation doesn't guarantee, doesn't, um, I don't know, uh, mean faith. But a part of the walk is going to be tribulation, specifically like the parable of the sower, because of the word we received. Now, 1 John 2.19, I actually have, I did not hear uh, any free grace teacher speak on this verse. Um, I'm sure they have rebuttal. I wish I could have known that so I can anticipate that as I process this out loud. Um, but 1 John 2, and by the way, me addressing specifically what free grace individuals say about passages does not mean I'm defending lordship. Those aren't the only two options. And that needs to be made abundantly clear. Children, it's the last hour. As you've heard, Antichrist is coming. I don't think you can be Antichrist in faith in Jesus, but conversation for another day. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it's the last hour. They, being those who stand in opposition to Christ and his gospel and who he is and his deity and his humanity, they went out from us. What does that mean? It means they used to be around us. They used to be with us. But they were not of us. What do you think that means? Does that just mean of the same level of dedication and devotion, of the same heart? Or does that mean of the same actual faith and right standing with God? For if they had been of us, guess what? They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I believe the anointing, according to 1 John, is mainly the Spirit of God. In other words, he shifts and he goes, they weren't of us, but you have the Spirit. What's the necessary mark of a believer? The Spirit of God. So this isn't like unserious Christians who left versus serious Christians who really stayed devoted. This is those who have the Spirit and those who don't. Those who have faith, those who don't. And those who don't are called Antichrist, used to be among them, with them, but they left, which was an indication, hey, they were never truly of us. Now, what the leaving fully captures, whether going after false doctrine or heresy or abandoning Christ altogether, regardless, it is the lack of continuing, which is not up to me. It's not on my efforts. It's not me sustaining. It's not me enduring and persevering. I'm going to get to that in a second. But it's also not to the negation of my free will. If they had been of us, here's the condition, if, meaning those who are of the believers, have faith, will continue in Christ, which is to simply continue believing, holding fast, not shifting hopes, saying he alone owns my hope. The fact that they did not continue is evidence that they were never of, having the same faith as, of the same family. They would have continued. So, I am biblically convinced, I'm going to take you to Isaiah 26, and then I'm going to explain the common rebuttals that I get, have gotten. I am biblically convinced, even after hearing all the different sides of this, that faith by nature 
not against our free will, but incorporation of our free will, faith by nature is enduring. And if it doesn't, there's either a rocky season someone's going through. Well, how long can that last? The, human whole, the whole human measurement thing frustrates me more than anything. How long is the season? How long until we really can discard them? How long until we really... The point is, they don't come back. They were not of us. I'm just going to take First John and his word. Isaiah 26, verse 1 through 5, it says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Listen. Listen. Because all we're talking about is faith. Faith continues. It is one moment of a person's life. It starts in a moment and it's expressed through the life. Right? Faith is lifelong action. And I'm going to use a helpful analogy that clicked it for me. It's not a perfect parallel. I know there's, there's going to be holes in what I'm saying. If someone's going to find something, that's fine. I'm, I'm willing to learn. That's why I've spent the hours I've, I've spent studying and reading and listening and lectures, man. That's why I've done this. Not because I'm like, I must hold my position. I want to know the truth. I want to know what the truth is so no one is led astray by me. Isaiah 26. In that day, here's a song that will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city, he sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Now, I stopped singing because I didn't want to sing anymore, and I'm frankly a terrible singer, but part of the setting up of salvation and Judah being a strong city because of the Lord is that they're opening gates, the gates, that the righteous nation. Why are they righteous? Because they keep faith and they can come in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. Hmm. Hey, trust in the Lord forever. You know why? Because God is forever faithful. God's forever reliable. He's an everlasting God. He's immutable. He does not change. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He's humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, 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 low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. Think of the serpent in Genesis 3. The serpent being trampled by the, the foot of the promised seed of the woman. The foot tramples it. The feet of the poor. Whoa. The steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. And he'll go on to talk about how his soul yearns for the Lord. But I want to show you this. The gates of Judah, the song that's sung, gates are open for the righteous nation that what? Has faith, possesses faith, keeps faith. And you go, this is not salvific in nature. It doesn't have to be. I'm just showing you the nature of faith in and of itself. Of course, it doesn't have to be justifying or salvific. This is saying, hey, the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Now, there are, in the Old Testament, I think I found almost 20 instances of a breach of faith. Um, so this seems to be the anti-version of that. Not a breaching of faith. No one believe. Keeping faith. You keep him. 
Hmm. Now, who did he just describe? Isaiah. Well, he described a nation, but within that is a kind of person being described. The one who keeps faith. That's righteous. It's not, hey, the longer I keep faith, I become righteous. It's because I am righteous, faith will be kept. What does that look like? I'm very simply trusting and believing in Jesus alone. And guess what? Here's why I believe in the enduring nature of faith. It's because you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. He trusts in you. Trust the Lord forever. The whole idea of faith is that I am committing myself to God, not even like, I will do this or I won't do this. It's, I can't save me. So I'm entrusting myself to you to save me and you pay my sin and you die my death and you pay my debt in full. And I trust in you. I don't shift. You're my only hope and savior. You alone are my salvation. And guess what? God keeps that person in. Perfect peace. But they're said to keep faith. So, some of the common arguments I get, right? Some will say that faith will always produce endurance or perseverance to the end, right? Which is to continue believing and relying on Jesus alone for righteousness and salvation. Notice how I've said nothing about works. I've said nothing about the doing with the body and the life except the I believe and then how the life is altered as a result of that belief, we'll talk about in the faith section. Okay, but people usually who hear this and go, well, if you're saying endurance, perseverance is always connected to true, genuine faith in God, saving faith, especially for the new covenant believer, then you can never know you're truly saved. I fundamentally disagree. We can know we're saved because the assurance that our faith continues to rely upon is God's ability to sustain us. In other words, the reason I'm certain that I'm safe is because of God's ability, not my own ability to endure. The problem with free grace theology when this, when this gets addressed is they almost make it like you either focus on God or you focus on your efforts. I agree. You shouldn't focus on what you do or what you can or can't do to sustain yourself or keep yourself saved, okay? So when I say true faith is enduring by nature or persevering, I'm not saying keep, look, keep your eyes on you. I'm saying quite the opposite. I'm saying keep your eyes on Him. My assurance and my eternal security doesn't come from looking at my own life and how holy I've been living or how well I've beaten sin or how many good things I've done for God. My assurance comes from God's ability to sustain me, finish what he started, be faithful, uh, come through on his promises. It's not up to my efforts. We can know we've come to believe according to 1 John 5, which means if we know we've come to believe, because this is, this is the common argument. People will say, well, you can't know you'll continue believing in the end. Ah, ah. 1 John 5 says, I can know I believe now. And since I'm of the belief that faith in Christ is by definition enduring, then I can know that yes, I will continue believing because the emphasis is not on me, it's on his ability to, his ability to sustain and complete what he started. Which is why you have the new nature, which is why you have the new heart, which is why you have the new position and the new life. It's not to the negation of your free will and it doesn't mean you can't grieve the spirit or you can't mess up, 
To say that we might not continue believing later is to make salvation start with grace and continue by our efforts. We all don't believe that's true. God sustains what he starts, but you can know it's begun. So if you know it's begun and there's assurance there, you know it'll finish. It's not up to you. And again, the, the common argument is, well, this is to the negation of your free will, it's not. But before I get to that, know this. Another argument people often bring up against the enduring nature of faith is they go, what if you stop believing for even a moment? What if you don't live out your faith for even one second? What if in this microsecond I choose not to live out my faith or choose not to rely on Jesus? No one said, scripture doesn't say, faith is perfect living or perfect obedience. Faith might be an action that we take, which is to believe, right? Faith is action. I believe. I consciously decide to make a free will decision. Yes, I believe. Then, however it works out to be a way of life, right? It's as up to what God wants to produce, the role I play in the body, but no one said it's a perfect life of faith. And I think we need to stop playing the whole intellectual game where it's like, well, what's the measurement? How far is too far? How much do you... It's really simple. If you believe God, God will continue that belief to the end, which is to tr trust and rely on Jesus alone for salvation. I'm not looking to me. That's the problem with the caricature of what the, the caricature people paint of what I believe is they go, you're focused on me. Quite the opposite. I, I am certain at the end of my life, I will, I will continue believing because it's not up to me. What God has started by my own free will decision, he'll guarantee to see through. And the bumps and roads along the way, the inconsistency of it all, he's worked it all out. If you have a problem with that, I don't know what to say. So this is not against your will. Watch this. The reason you get a new nature, the reason you get the spirit, the reason you come to life as a new creation, the reason you get a new heart is because now what God does through my decision to believe, which is that he sustains me, what he does is not against my will, but perfectly aligned with the deepest desire of my truest self, which is me, spiritually alive, positioned in Christ, longs for and desires to continue trusting on Jesus. And I believe God will sustain that all the way through. It's not a negation of your free will. You still can sin. You can still grieve the spirit. You can still violate convictions. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying you should. But I'm saying it's a possibility. Your free will is still intact. But the way God incorporates your free will into the decision you've made to believe and how that works itself out to the end is on his sovereignty and ability to do so. It's not on you. You know, so the other question becomes, what if you stop relying on Jesus for even a second? My own faithlessness in a microsecond doesn't negate God's faithfulness and promises that were set into motion the microsecond I believed. The degree to which faith manifests in my life, what he accomplishes through me, it's not man, up to man's standards. My job is to trust God even in times of wandering and doubt and struggle. That doesn't mean faith's not there anymore. The deepest part of who I am, the realest version of me, believes, loves, treasures, values Christ. My flesh gets in the way, man. It really does. That's why our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. So part of the way I believe God keeps our position intact through our faith 
is by his own ability to ensure our belief does continue, which is why you have the commands, hey, continue abiding, continue remaining, hold fast the word. Because that endurance, that perseverance, the yeah, 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 thanks for the reminder. Maybe like I got sluggish. Maybe I just, the condition is still there. That true faith, I believe, will hold fast to the end, will remain till the end, will continue. Is it inconsistent? Are there bumps and ups and downs and ebbs and flows of my life where I'm not even aware of like Jesus is here today? Sure. Does that negate the moment of faith I had that God sustains to the end? No, not in, not in the least bit. Here's a helpful analogy that helped me process this, okay? When we talk about belief, everyone, especially more of, I hate to say it, like the extremist free grace individuals who are brothers and sisters for sure, but they'll often be like, well, how much? How much can you mess up? How much can you grieve? How much can you convict before it's not in really enduring and not persevering? Here's a helpful analogy. We are always breathing. That's necessary to sustain life. Okay? Even though it may be inconsistent, sometimes I breathe really slow and I have to take deeper breaths. Sometimes I'm, I'm breathing really fast because I'm working out and I'm taking e even, even deeper breaths. Sometimes I'm consciously breathing and I'm aware of the fact that I need to take breaths in. Sometimes it's, it's, it's subconscious and it's not even, I'm not aware of it, I'm just breathing. My body's breathing, I'm taking in breaths. Sometimes I'm not breathing at all, holding my breath or w whatever it may be. Okay? The inconsistency of my breathing throughout my life doesn't change the fact that throughout my life, in order to be alive, I am still breathing. Breathing is necessary for life. No breath, no life. It's the same for faith. When you come to believe, and you believe on the Son alone, trust in Him alone for salvation, you're made righteous, justified, all that, the inconsistency of that faith, whether it's slow faith, I'm using the analogy of like breathing, slow faith, fast faith, Conscious faith, unconscious, subconscious faith, struggling at all, and it seems like I'm, I'm not even where I want to be in doubting. The, the point is, no faith, no life. But throughout the believer's life, there will be, even if it's ever so small, the presence of all the way through a trust, a deep reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. That's just the nature of salvation and faith, is that it's kept intact. Okay. Been at this for two hours. I have three more pages of notes. Three more pages of notes. Let's do it. If you guys need to leave and come back, uh, do it. Do it. I ain't gonna stop you. Do your thing. I have one, two, three, four, five more things I want to say about faith. It's going to take about another hour, okay? I need to gather myself. I need to pee, to be very honest. And I'll be back, okay? Don't go anywhere. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people 
people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338 uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly. Clearly, so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, We're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we... um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. This whole conversation can be so difficult to navigate, man. One thing I was thinking of is essentially what you have is two camps that want to put all the emphasis on either God or man, right? Um, and, and maybe, actually, no. The Lordship Salvation side of things says all God. Because um, it's usually Calvinistic in nature. Not always, not always, okay. And then the free grace side of things, it's like, yeah, all, all God, nothing about you. And it's like, eh. what we don't understand is God partners with people. He makes provision for salvation. He brings the gospel. He makes faith the fruit of the gospel being heard. But I do have a decision to believe. So when it comes to the whole, like, persevering, enduring. It's a partnership. It's like, I, I, I have a conscious decision to continue holding on and loving him. And even when I'm not, or when I fail to, or whatever the inconsistency may be, when it comes to like, I'm not feeling it today. I don't even know if God sustains that and fills in the gaps of what I can't do. So what I'm going to show you now, this is, like I said, this is easily the deepest, most exhaustive teaching I've ever done on faith. Um, I think there's biblical precedence for the fact that true faith, as I've already noted, isn't reduced to mere intellectual belief. And I think John 8 just helped us maybe make a case for that, okay? But John chapter 2, and I know the free grace position. Like I, I know, I heard the teachers. They talk about how the entrusting here on the part of Jesus doesn't negate the actual presence of salvation and all that. But... Here we have, I think it's important to understand that there's a journey of faith for the apostles. And it's almost like along the way in John's gospel especially, there's um, pictures of their own, where they're at with Jesus in the crowds. In in other words, like in John 2, where the disciples are at in proximity to Jesus, where their faith is, you see a picture of that in the way that the crowds relate to Jesus. So when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, 
many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, some people would say, well, it's not legitimate faith because they needed signs. I would say that God works a lot through signs and wonders. Like he does that especially to Pharaoh. You will know that I am the Lord when you see the signs I do, or for Moses or Israel. So God's not against giving signs. I think he's against what 1 Corinthians would say, the Jews look for a sign. They're like, I need it. But either way, Jesus gives them signs and they believe in his name, in his name. Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, okay? Now there are a couple passages um, that kind of make sense of this. In John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, I think what's going on here, when Jesus doesn't entrust himself to people who claim to believe, or John even says, scripture says, they believed in his name, right? Jesus didn't entrust himself. It sounds like John 6, when you're like, what does it mean that Jesus didn't entrust himself to, okay? Well, he multiplied fish and loaves. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet <gasps> that Moses spoke of, remember? who is to come into the world, perceiving they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, right? To make him king. Which would essentially be going against the plan of God and what Jesus really was doing. Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself, by himself. In John 6, 64 through 71, there are some of you who don't believe, Jesus says. He says, it's the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who don't believe. And guess what? Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said, do you guys want to go too? Peter said, where, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and we've come to know you're the Holy One of God. Did I not choose you, Jesus said, and yet one of you is a devil? So Jesus knew from the beginning who Judas was, what he would do. It doesn't mean Judas never had a sense of, I, I, I believe this man and what he's doing. I don't think Judas was a fake from the beginning. Um, we don't know it absolutely, you know, definitively for sure. Um, but scripture does tell us Jesus knew from the beginning uh, who didn't believe. Okay, so he didn't entrust himself. John chapter 2, same idea. Jesus didn't entrust himself to, to them because he knew all people. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about man. He knew what was in man. Now, what this means, I, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. Why make it clear that Jesus could read the hearts and the thoughts of men? Why bring that into the equation? And how does that relate to Jesus choosing not to entrust himself to people? And here's like the reasoning process. We can reason through this real quick. Jesus goes, or John's recording, hey, the, the crowd see the signs, they believe. Jesus knows the hearts of people. He knows what's in men. So he doesn't entrust himself to them. That might be an indication of what we see in John 6 that Jesus knew from the beginning who didn't believe, even though these say they believed in his name, as we've already seen all the way up to John chapter eight, there seems to be a confusion about who Jesus is, what he's doing, where he comes from, where, uh, there's no understanding. 
So I, I doubt there's understanding early on in John 2 with these crowds, right? There might be different crowds, different people, different spiritual uh, maturity levels for sure. But there is Jesus not entrusting himself to them. And I just wonder, that there's the potential that this is indeed saving faith. Because in John 1, uh, I'll take you to John chapter 1. This is the free grace argument, which I'm, I'm okay with, with taking. Um, it says, To all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you want to be a child of God, you have to believe in the name of Jesus. Well, these crowds seem to be meeting that condition, right? They believe in his name. So there is the possibility... And that's why like, you can read the same scripture and come to different conclusions because I'm, I'm still not entirely convinced what we're seeing here is that actual faith and appropriate understanding in who Jesus is, where he's come from, what he's come to do. In John 8, we see the same thing happen. Um, and so I'm inclined to think that what's happening here is not necessarily saving faith. It could be. It could be. Both sides are very reasonable. Okay, both sides are very reasonable. Um, and so in Mark chapter 9, we have a desperate father saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, this doesn't relate to salvation. This is not salvific in nature. This is not talking about righteousness and justification. And I believe Jesus is the Messiah, the only one who can save from sin. This is a father going, I have a son. He's got a demon. And he goes, if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion. Help us if you can do anything. And Jesus goes, if? Whoa, well, if I can, all things are possible for someone who believes. So this is specifically faith in Jesus' ability to do. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. How is there the presence of belief, yet also the need for unbelief to be addressed and helped? How does that even go together? Hey, I have unbelief. Can you help me through this? I believe. There's, there's, that, there's that balance. It's really odd. There's a tension there. And so I, I do believe that there is such a thing as having a, a kind of belief in a set of facts or un believing a certain set of things about Jesus, yet the unbelief that needs to be addressed is specifically regarding who he is, what he's done. In other words, it's what we see in John 8. Um, and so I, I don't believe that biblical in Hebrew thought, especially that real biblical faith is mere intellectual acknowledgement of the facts or agreement with the facts. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this. I don't think I have to because I believe we're all in agreement that mere confession doesn't definitively prove the presence of faith. Matthew chapter 7, Lord, Lord, did we not? They confess to know Jesus. They don't because they trust in their works. Um, you know, Acts chapter 8, we see this Simon the sorcerer. He had a kind of confession. Maybe he really did believe, but the text seems to indicate that he at least for sure has no part in being having apostolic authority to uh, lay hands on people and they receive the Spirit. But it could indicate, the text could indicate, because of the fact that, we'll just go there real quick, actually. Um, because the text, this actually might play perfectly into the whole, there can be the presence of a kind of faith about Jesus, the wrong set of facts, um, but not, you know, 
real biblical faith. I think this might play into it. So we have Simon the sorcerer in some in Samaria. Simon saw the apostles. I believe it's Peter and John. Um, Peter and John are sent to Samaria to help Philip, Philip the evangelist. Um, they've been baptized in the name of Jesus. Peter and John lay their hands on people who believed Philip's message, and they received the Holy Spirit. So when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He offered them money. Now, mind you, Simon has a reputation in Samaria for wowing people with signs and wonders, whether legitimate or not. It's just he's wowing people. He impresses people. He makes money off of that. So now he sees another opportunity for money. And he's willing to fork up some cash in order to get more cash, sees it as an investment potentially. And he says, give me this power too. Yeah, yeah. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands, they'll receive the spirit. Peter said, are you kidding me? May your silver bearers with you. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? Now, is he talking about the Spirit of God? Or is he talking about the power to lay hands on people so they can have the Spirit? I believe contextually it's the power. You've neither part nor lot in this matter. Okay? And you and I go, well, obviously, Simon, he has a wrong heart here. He shouldn't be out there distributing the Spirit willy-nilly because he's just going to profit off people and make money and use that power for selfish gain. So we go, he's referring to the distributing of the Spirit. But there's potentially another option. Your heart is not right before God, and I think in this matter. Repent of this wickedness of yours. Hmm. Now hold on. And pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now, if um, uh, forgiveness is still needed for a certain sin he needs to repent of, then that might be an indication Simon actually doesn't, he's not righteous, he doesn't have true faith. Because think about it, when you get saved, all your sins are forgiven. Now there is the daily need to repent and confess, uh, but that's affecting our, our intimacy with God, not our position. So uh, right now, okay, standing here today in on February 20th, 2023, all of my sins, past, present, future, according to Hebrews, are completely forgiven by Jesus. God has declared me forgiven of all my sin. So I don't have the need to be forgiven over and over. If the cross cleanses me once for all of all my sin, then my daily confession or repentance isn't to be more forgiven or to deal with sin that God hasn't already forgiven me of. It's to remove anything from obstructing my intimacy with God. The problem with Simon here is Peter actually says, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, which means Simon is still in need of forgiveness. He calls him to repent of this wickedness. I would venture to say, 
He goes, I see you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now you might say, that's just one sin and not sin in general. Okay, but Simon answered, pray, uh, this is Simon the sorcerer telling Peter, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. What's Simon in danger of? Seems to be the bond of iniquity and not being forgiven of this wickedness of his. His heart is not right before God. That's what it says in verse 21. So, could Simon potentially not really uh, be righteous in the sight of God? The fact that he needs forgiveness and there's wickedness that needs to be turned from and he's in the bond of iniquity. I'm just saying the only op, it's not, it's not like there's only one option where it's like, well, you know, Simon, he believes, but he just, this thing needs to be dealt with. There's another option which says, hey, Simon did believe in verse 13 when he heard the preaching of Philip. Simon himself believed, okay? And he, seeing signs and great wonders performed, he was amazed. He's, he's usually the one amazing people, but now he's the one being amazed, okay? Now it's interesting, the fact that he's amazed might be an indication of the kind of belief that's going on here. It might be pure impressiveness where Simon, now I know the text says he believes, but contextually, we should read between the lines in terms of what is being described about this belief. Well, he's amazed. Could the kind of belief he has be pure amazement and awe and wonder? Do we see examples of, of, of people like that in the Old Testament who are just impressed with God and stand in awe of like the signs and wonders and are blown away? Yeah, we see signs, like, we see people like that all throughout scripture. Um, Certain nations uh, that are in the, in the promised land before Israel occupies it, you know, they heard about what God did to Egypt or Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself saw the signs. There's, a, there's an amazement. Uh, the people of Egypt who are with Pharaoh, right, they're being, you know, awestruck by the signs. Israel is awestruck by signs. It doesn't mean they believe. So there are quite a few examples of people who are amazed but don't have, like, the kind of belief that is biblical and, and genuine. It's like just a, wow, this is impressive. And I admit that it's happening. And so I, I think there's room for us to wrestle with this and go, I can't definitively say whether or not Simon was truly uh, a child of God, righteous, forgiven or not. The text doesn't clearly indicate. Just for me, there's more evidence in favor of him not being uh right with God, the fact that he still needs forgiveness, and there's wickedness that needs to be dealt with, his heart's not right before God, he's in the bond of iniquity. I mean, Peter says, if this intent may be forgiven, not to say God will withhold forgiveness potentially, right? Um, but I, I think the if is just speaking to maybe Simon's, uh, Simon the sorcerer's decision to either ask or not. I don't, I don't know what's happening there, to be honest. But if this is indeed an instance of someone who did believe, as described by Luke, the historian, and yet he wasn't actually a child of God or righteous through that kind of belief that's described, then there's another thing that, that furthers my case that I see in scripture. There's a kind of belief that doesn't save. So mere confession, whether it's Luke 6.46, they confess Jesus as Lord, but don't do what he says. 
Isaiah 29, 13, Matthew 15, 7 through 9. They honor God with their lips. They're not specifically confessing the gospel or confessing Jesus is Messiah, but it is a confession about God that I know him and you're pleased and God sees right through it. And so obviously confession doesn't always guarantee anything. I think if that's true, then we can also conclude that because a confession verbally doesn't guarantee the presence of faith, then true faith doesn't always require the evidence of some verbal confession. Um, just some things I'm thinking through. Otherwise, if you say that, you go to Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, the whole point of that is to say that the mouth is ultimately a reflection of the heart, right? And so what someone does confess about Jesus, because all these qualifiers come into play. Is it a public confession in crowds? Is it a confession just to someone? Is it confession just on your lips, quietly in a private room where no one can hear? What kind of confession is in mind? No matter what, it is a reflection of the heart that either believes or does not believe. And I, I don't believe that uh, if I am a true born-again believer right now, yeah, let's just speak of um, someone who is mute. Someone who's mute hears the gospel, can never verbally confess with their lips the gospel to anyone or make it publicly known. Well, you might go, well, they can write it down, they can sign it, they can, they can text it. Sure, sure. The point is, you can see how we can get too rigid and too overly literal with it. I'm just trying to show you that the confession uh, of the lips isn't always an indication of true faith. Um, in John 5, 46 through 47, we have Jesus calling essentially the religious leaders fakes. He says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. So hold on. Do the Pharisee and religious leaders believe Moses? They do not. If they did, they would believe who? Well, the one whom the Torah foreshadows and speaks of. Therefore, they're false, they're self-deceived. They think they believe the law of Moses, but they don't. If you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's that comparison between the earthly and the heavenly again. So, um, they think they believe in Torah, but they really don't. Otherwise, they'd believe in the Messiah. And ultimately, what you need to understand is God alone is the only one who truly knows the human heart and the eternal standing of someone's soul. Like, I, no one definitively knows the heart of another. I, I don't. I don't definitively know your heart and your faith and where you're at and what you understand. I don't know that. I don't know that. I can get some kind of uh, picture based on all these different things and, and make a more educated decision. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. But the person can know whether they truly believe or not. You can know, and God knows. Whether anyone else knows definitively, I, frankly, it doesn't really matter to me. Acts 26, 27 through 28, we see King Agrippa, whom Paul says, look what he says. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He's standing on trial. He, I know you believe. Whoa. What does King Agrippa uh, at least from Paul's perspective, believe. He believes the prophets. Agrippa said, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, 
Whew. I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me might become as I am. <laughs> Cracks a joke, except for these chains, am I right, guys? Uh, what a jokester you are, Paul, even on trial. So there is a kind of, I believe what they say, but if you did, you would believe who? The Son and the Gospel. So there seems to be a kind of belief that stops at the intellect. I'm convinced, or I agree with the facts, or uh, the set of the information you gave me, I agree with and I acknowledge as true, and it doesn't go beyond that. It's not a being persuaded to follow Jesus and believe in him alone, okay? Also, true faith doesn't trust in works. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. This is huge, man. A lot of people think like, ah, oh, these are people who didn't do enough good. No, the problem is they relied on their own good works to get them to the Father and not the work of Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So there's the confession. And we don't have the details of what they confess or believe about Jesus. Just that, Lord, Lord, they call him Lord. Kind of like... Uh, when Saul's on the road to Damascus, and then Jesus appears and goes, uh, or speaks, and he goes, Lord, Lord, who are you? There's an acknowledgement of authority. And these people seem to acknowledge, you're an authority, but not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, which is to believe. We saw that in John uh, 6, to believe on the Son. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy, cast out demons, do many mighty works in your name? In your name. I'll declare to them, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. Now, First John will tell us, all sin is lawlessness. Which essentially, Jesus is saying, I don't know you. You didn't do the will of my Father, which is to believe and you were workers of lawlessness or sin. You were sinners, trusting in your own goodness. <clears throat> I wanna show you something. <sighs> My neck is like killing me. There's a progression of faith for the disciples in John's gospel, and you need to see it. You really need to see it. And that's how I've come to the conclusions I've come to about what I've already said, man. Like, I'm not here sitting, standing for three hours because I want to. Just know that. I didn't decide, I'm so excited to teach about lordship versus free grace. Not what I wanted. I'm only doing this because I believe it's needed. And I believe that God has told me to do it. And I, why would I not do what he says? It's going to benefit you. This is not what, it's that important to me. There's a progression of the faith of the disciples. So uh, the problem with a lot of free grace individuals is they will say, stop making the distinction between head faith and heart faith. Now I agree, usually that's a wrong, that's the wrong terminology. I agree. And they'll say, there's no biblical precedence for that. Eh, there is biblical precedence so far of people who seem to have a kind of belief. 
but not faith. Not faith that makes righteous, but a mere, I don't know, like, I believe the wrong things about Jesus. Um, I was given a false gospel and I believe in that, or I add my works to the gospel, or I believe a set of things about him, but I don't trust in him. You know, there's these different ways of explaining it, and I wanna be careful of the terminology I use. But in John 2, I wanna show you this, okay? There's a progression in the faith of the disciples. In John 2.11, Jesus turns water into wine. Wish he came to my wedding. His disciples did what? Believed. Why? It's the first of the signs he did. He manifested his glory through what? Through the sign. His disciples believed. What do they believe though? Well, I think at least, as we see in, see in John's gospel, I think it's, uh, I forget who, Nathaniel or Philip, Jesus says, hey, I saw you under that tree, and he goes, you're the Messiah. Yes, I am. You believe because I told you you're under a tree? <laughs> oh, man, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Buckle up. So we do see the presence of a kind of belief. About what, though? Well, you know, per Philip or Nathaniel in John 1, it's you are the Messiah. What does that mean, though? What does that mean? Uh, remember that the faith specifically in Jesus, that he is Messiah to save, to, to pay for sin, to die our death, to resurrect, to sit at the right hand of the Father, all of that is not yet a known thing to the disciples who are believing. Now, if they read the Old Testament, they'd see that. The only problem is they don't see that, and we know that because Jesus later has to open their minds so they understand what was in the scriptures regarding himself. They don't see it. So, how do you believe in Jesus and call him the Messiah, yet don't understand what that really means and see how he fits into the Old Testament and don't know about the atonement, payment for sin, Payment for human evil, his death, his resurrection, our need for... How do you not understand that, but you believe in Jesus? In John 6, 69, uh, by Peter's own admission, he says, You have the words of life. We've believed and come to know. You are the Holy One of God. Okay, that's a good start. We've believed that you are the only... Well, the Holy One of God. That's an exclusive term. In Matthew chapter 16... This is chronologically after John 6, even though it's a different gospel. We see Peter confess Jesus as the Christ, anointed one, Messiah, son of David, the promised seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the true seed of, the, of Abraham. Now, when Jesus came into the district, he said, hey, who do you guys say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say, I forget what people say, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I told you that in John 6, 69. Don't you remember Jesus? Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father. Now, was that revealed in that moment? Or was that revealed at some other previous moment in his life? Doesn't necessarily say, but in John 6, 69, it does say, we believe you're the Holy One of God. Now, I tell you, you're Peter, he'll go on, and right after this, man, 
we have Peter um, not deny Jesus. I think it's in Mark's gospel, in Mark's account of this. Um, we have Peter turn around and go, Jesus, you will not die for us. Whoa, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're of. You don't know what spirit you're of. How do you know he's the Christ, but you deny what he's came to do and you stand in a, you know, obstruction of that? Well, because there's a disconnect. You are the Christ. You came to conquer and win and give victory, not die. Oh, so how can you believe in him as suffering servant for sin when you're too busy thinking of him as only conquering king? You can't. So what do they believe about Jesus? Well, it's not exactly apparent, but there's language along the way. Holy one of God, Messiah. And again, I don't think you and I in hindsight know what those terms mean, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. They did not. And we know that because he has to open their minds to understand. And he explains to them himself in the law, in the prophets, in the writings. John 13, 19, after, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, uh, so when it does, you may believe. Oh my gosh, do you not see it, guys? Peter has already believed. Disciples have already believed. You're the Holy One of God. You calm the storm. You cast out demons. You raise the little girl to life. We know you're the anointed one and the Messiah. And Jesus is saying what he said in John 8 to the crowds. Remember John 8? I'm going to take you there real quick. John 8. Remember he said, hey, um, unless you believe I am he, you'll die in your sins. That's a, that's a condition to being set free from sin. You need to believe I am he. Only problem is, they can't, okay, until they've lifted up the Son of Man. In other words, the crucifixion uh, marks the point in time where people can now look to him as the payment for sin. Prior to that, they didn't know that... Uh, he is who he said he was, or at least they had an idea that was wrong. Because look, Peter's already said, you're the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. You're the, you're the Christ. But why does Jesus in John 13 say, when I'm telling you this before it takes place, what? That Judas is going to betray me. When it happens, I'm telling you so that you may believe I am he. I thought they already believed you are he. Messiah, anointed one, the Christ. I thought they already believed. Apparently, there's some necessary theological components lacking in that picture of what a Messiah is supposed to be. So that you may believe I am he. So maybe they, they're like, we do believe you are he. Stop talking in that third person. We know you are, you are him. And he's like, no, not yet. You have an idea of what that even means. The whole God in the flesh come to pay for his people's crime, suffering in their place, fulfilling every prophecy, all the way up to the ascension. You don't see that yet, but you'll know. Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. So I thought the disciples believed. Why is it that they're waiting for a moment to really believe? John 14, 29, next chapter. I've told you before it takes place so that when it does, you may believe. What? That he's going to the Father. 
when he is. He's talking about his ascension. I'm going away. And I'll come to you by the Spirit, day of Pentecost. So the ascension to the Father will further their faith and make them what? Believe. So that you may believe. He doesn't say so you can believe more or you can believe the right thing. Whatever has been described of the apostles as believing doesn't seem to be legitimately grounded in who Christ actually is and what he's really done. So if the understanding isn't there for the atonement of sin and you're the Messiah and you pay for that and you resurrect and you make me righteous, if that's not there, what do they believe? I hope you're seeing it. Uh, and this is unique, I believe, to that season of Jesus being on the earth with his people. Meaning, I don't believe that you and I go through this series of uh, almost getting into deeper levels of faith. I believe you believe you believe. But as the, as the Messiah is unfolding who he is and what he's come to do, and as these events are actually happening real time, right? We look back and go, that's all done. <laughs> now I can believe in the fullness of who you are and what you do. They didn't have that. It's progressively happening. That's why their faith is almost, you might say, developing with the narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You're seeing faith develop into what's going to happen is he's going to breathe his spirit on them. How can you have that unless you believe? Well, apparently there must be something taking place there that I don't fully understand yet. But John 16, 30. Now we know you know all things. Now we know. What did you guys think before this, man? He said, I'm going to the Father. I'm, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples go, ah! Now you're speaking plainly. Stop using figurative speech, Jesus. Now we know you know all things. And you don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? I thought up to this point, at least six other times, they've already confessed to believe he is Messiah. He's the Christ. What's different about this moment? Well, Jesus says, as a question, essentially, now? The hour is coming when you'll be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things so that in me you may have peace, which comes from what? Believing. Now they know what they've already been described as knowing up to this point. What's going on? What's going on? Hmm. And this is mainly for those who will say that faith being convinced or persuaded is enough. Persuaded of what? And is mere persuasion and acknowledgement of the information purely what faith is? Because biblically, especially as I see the apostles evolving understanding in relationship with Jesus and the faith, it says, now you believe, now you believe, now you... It's like things are happening real time. Now... Thomas in John 20 still does not believe what that they've seen the Lord. So specifically the resurrection. Hmm. 
how do you believe in Jesus as Messiah without resurrection? Well, you can't really. At least when you were one of the apostles. <laughs> I was thinking of Anna the prophetess and uh, Simeon who believed in the coming salvation and redemption of Israel. And they look at Jesus and go, oh, you're it. And maybe they understood the resurrection. Maybe they didn't. Okay, and text doesn't indicate that. But the resurrection is a necessary component of the gospel in this side of human history, especially when Thomas is looking at Jesus. He said, I'll never believe unless I touch his hands. Peter's like, that's weird. Verse 27, Jesus goes, oh, Thomas. Thomas goes, you know what? My Lord and my God. And Jesus goes, man, believe. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we're 20 chapters into John. And Thomas, it, the scriptures describe him as believing. Luke 24, 25, and he said to them, Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So uh, how do you know the prophets, but you don't believe the prophets? Same way John 5 says the Pharisees did. Except now Jesus is going to show them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things about himself, which they previously, up to this point, for 24 chapters, three and a half years, did not understand or see. That he's suffering servant, Messiah, Savior, redemption, sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. You mean up to this point you still don't believe the prophets? At least what they predict and say of the Messiah as relating to Christ? John 2.22 When Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus spoke. Right here, Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He was speaking about the temple. They will not understand this or believe in it because they don't understand for three and a half years. Post-resurrection. They're going to remember this and go, I remember that. Remember what he said? Yeah. I think we believe it now. They will believe. Even though they're currently described all throughout John's gospel as believing. Hmm. So is there such a thing as believing? <clears throat> but not being righteous because that belief stops at something? Or it's obstructed or it's in the wrong thing or it's in the wrong idea about Christ and what he's done? For sure. So when I describe the difference between saving faith, free grace individuals hate that terminology because I, I get it, it's, it's frustrating. But I use that terminology because there is a distinction between mere faith that is intellectual and philosophical and acknowledging of the facts and agreeing with the information. And then there is what that should move you into is a trust and reliance upon that I believe when we get to the episode on fruit is going to be witnessed by the life. You know, the opposite of faith is denial and unbelief. I think you knew that. I think you knew that. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why? Why are they perishing? Because they refused to love the truth and be saved. There's another example of believing is a free will decision, not something God forces upon someone and not on others. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false. Do we see people who believe what is false in our world, in our culture, in history, in scripture, in Jesus's day, in the apostles day? In order that all may be condemned who did not believe what? The truth. Look what's contrasted with believing the truth. Having pleasure in unrighteousness. Loving, delighting in, enjoying sin. Instead of believing the truth. Because those two ideas are contrasted, I don't believe they can coexist and we'll get to that when we get to the fruit series. But unbelief here is to refuse to love the truth and be saved. Hebrews chapter 3 describes it. The opposite of faith as having an unbelieving heart. Um, uh, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Referring to Old Testament Israel. Wasn't it all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Which, by the way, if you read Exodus, it says they believed um, several times. Uh, I believe Exodus chapter, I forget where, I can pull it up, but it says they believed several times. And now Moses, or the author of Hebrews looking back saying, they heard and yet rebelled the people who left Egypt by the power of God. God he, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned? Whoa. So the sin here is rebelling in unbelief, right? Whose bodies fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? Why are they not entering his rest? Because they were disobedient. Now specifically, it's unbelief here. You miss out on the promised land and the presence of God for eternity because of unbelief, which is described as disobedience and rebellion and sin. I don't know how Calvinistic theology can get around that. I really don't. It's pretty clear. Um, I'm probably going to end it here. Because what I plan to say is more relating to what what will be happening in a person's life as a product of faith, as a byproduct of faith. Um, I will say this as we end. Um, biblically, y your beliefs drive your life, not just even biblically, like in all reality, in everyone's experience. Everyone's lives are driven by their beliefs. Everyone is living out their beliefs. What you are convinced is true is what you're going to live according to. So belief and lifestyle, not just in practice, but in scripture, are inextricably connected. You'll see in the Old Testament, 
over 20 times, there's a breach of faith, a violation of faith. Now you would say it's a violation of their beliefs, but it doesn't mean there's no presence of faith. That's fine. 1 Corinthians 10.13 or 1 Chronicles 10.13, uh, in the next episode, we'll see King Saul. We'll see how God is faithful to us forever because our faith is in Jesus alone. I, I'm going to segue into the next episode by saying this, hopefully whet your appetite that I believe there's more than enough scripture to say, okay, with all honesty and, and authenticity, that faith and lifestyle are inextricably connected, cannot be disconnected. And if there's faith or belief or trust in Messiah, Jesus alone for salvation, then you will see what I'm going to call fruit in the next episode. And I encourage you to be there for that. I'm choosing not to say a lot of the things I want to say. You guys already saw two commercials on Above Reproach Ministry, so I don't need to end like that. You guys already know what it is. By the way, check out our podcast. The newest one is um, uh, going to be uh, a follow-up on Andy Stanley and that whole thing. I would encourage you guys to go watch that. We release a new episode because there's two podcasts, right? There's where I put these, these sermons on podcast format. And then there is... Um, Above Reproach Church podcast, where my brother-in-law and I, we talk about church issues, and we try and bring wisdom and understanding into that, and talk through what it looks like for us to function as the church, so it does affect you. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, it's linked in the description below, Above Reproach Church podcast, new episode every Tuesday, and uh, this will also be on podcast um, as well, anywhere you can hear podcasts, all right? I think I've described faith as clearly as I can. Let me sum it up with one helpful statement. If I can find it. Faith is assurance rooted in understanding, right? And it's being so convinced something is true that it actually does change your life. And we'll see that in the next episode. All right? Faith is very simple. Believe. Trust. And there are all these elements of faith we had to explore in depth. So you understand when Scripture speaks of believe, have faith and trust in what it means. What it means. All right? I'm exhausted. I'm going to go rest. I've been standing for a really long time. Like my old Best Buy days as a cashier. And um, I'll see you guys later.